0: Okay, this first handout, you guys are going to get a lot of material today because really this class is. uh, I've had a lot longer time in the past to teach it. I'm trying to give you a condensed version of it. There should be enough things to go around. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a lot of material that, not necessarily going to go over it all, but I want you to have it so you can reflect on it later. But I, want, I don't want to give it all to you at once. I just want to kind of work our way through. It's a little bit like uh, taking a sip out of a fire hydrant. So let's pass those around and make sure we got one for everybody. Okay, has anybody got one? They're still coming around. Enough for everybody. Okay, we good? Anybody got one? All right, perfect. Okay, we start off with a C.S. Lewis quote here from God in the Dock. He says uh, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be is of, a, of moderate importance. So this really is so, you know, important that we are able to defend it because uh, Christianity is when time to get to into this class my goal is to show you that it is the one true faith and we can prove it starting from the process that we're going to start off with uh, this morning. So let's talk about what apologetics is. Apologetics is the reasoned defense of the Christian faith. The word apologia does it doesn't mean that you're apologizing for Christianity. Well yeah, it means it's to defend, okay? So it is a reasoned defense of the Christian religion. Christianity is a faith, to be sure, but there are reasons for this faith. Faith is not to be confused with reason, but neither is it to be separated from it. Again, we're, this, this is going against this whole idea that uh, you know religion is has no has you know the faith in Christ has no, Uh, It's it's apart from reason. It's just a leap into the dark of faith. That's not true. There is a reason for what we believe. It's a reason faith. All right, what is the role of apologetics in relationship to evangelism and theology? So really, this is kind of a helpful little thing to look at the difference between uh, what, what apologetics does and what evangelism does. Like, apologetics is the... Really belief that. So really apologetics we're talking about reasons for why we believe. And then evangelism is belief in. It. The apologetics is reason. We're gonna to have to talk about a lot of reasons for why uh, we believe Christianity is true. Evangelism, we're talking about somebody believing, faith. By the way, there's some extra handouts back there. Can you let's make sure these folks just came in have them? Okay. Great. Okay, apologetics has to do with the mind. Really, evangelism has to do with the will. We're asking people to make a choice in evangelism, to choose Christ. Apologetics is comprehension. Evangelism really is about commitment. What's that? Is it? I can't hear you. Is there any more back here? Let's try to get the number based on how many signed up. There should be it should be extra. I mean, it should be enough right there. Uh, is, there are we, is there anyone? Jimmy got two sticking together. Double check, make sure. Be. Okay. Okay. So, apologetics is perceiving. Evangelism is receiving. And the whole idea of apologetics is you can lead a horse to water, but evangelism you can't make them drink. In other words. What we're trying to do is we're given reasons for somebody to believe. But they're still going to make a choice. It's like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. People are still going to have to choose whether or not they want Christ. It's not going to be what we'd say in philosophy is say. It's not logically inescapable. Remember what it remember what says in Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith is impossible to please God. So God is, God is going to leave room for faith. What we're saying is that we've got a lot of answers, but still someone's going to have to choose to believe, all right? Okay, apologetics is kind of look before, evangelism before you leap. Okay, apologetics is to defend the faith. Evangelism is to proclaim the gospel. By the way, there's still what people need to hear to be saved is still the gospel. So don't ever get away from that. It's not that apologetics is not going to save somebody. It's they still need to hear the gospel, all right? So, of course, the, the, the verse for apologetics is First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And then, of course, First Corinthians 15 is the gospel and evangelism. All right, look down here on the relationship between faith and reason here. Okay, so you start off with a partial understanding that apologetics can help. And then you decide, you know, with, with, along with the gospel, that you're ready to believe. But come to two, faith. The result of believing is you'll have a great understanding, a greater understanding. St. Augustine said this in about 400 A.D. He said, faith is understanding's step. Understanding is faith's reward. All right, let's stop there. I don't want to lose you guys this one. So, so here's the idea. You have to have enough understanding to believe. But once you believe in Christ, there is there's you know awakening, a new under, a greater understanding happens to you. And so what we're talking about is apologetics is that it helps that little bit of understanding, you know, and that that you need in order to say, so, okay, understand enough to believe, but once you believe there's there is a greater understanding given because the Spirit of God now is invade invade your life. Okay, so apologetics is preliminary to faith. We call it pre-evangelistic. It's instrumental to faith. And it's confirmatory of faith. In fact, John Calvin, during Reformation, he thought the only real benefit of apologetics was for the Christian. After the Christian had really come to faith, that they then learned apologetics and realized, oh, this all, you know, how solid their faith really is. And, but yet, it's a, it, it can be very helpful uh, for someone to have enough understanding to uh, turn to Christ alright let's look at this next section here those who refuse apologetics are agnostics and skeptics it's two sided so if flip around the definition and evaluation of the, first of all the two kinds of agnosticism there's actually hard agnosticism and soft agnosticism so first of all number one soft agnosticism claims that we do not know if God exists as the soft agnostic is going to say, uh, "I don't know." Uh, no, there's not. That's, that's you're getting ahead of me. He's going to get some more copies. Okay, okay. So look, look at your hand here. Soft agnosticism does not eliminate the possibility of knowing whether God exists. It says in effect, "I do not know whether God exists," but it does not. Uh, it's not. It does. It does not say it's impossible to know. I simply do not know. Do not have enough evidence to make a rational decision on the question. This, of course, leaves the door open to the one who may know God, and that some indeed may truly know God. This form of Gnosticism is no threat to Christian theism. A good example of, uh, of a soft agnostic was there's an astronomer by the name of uh, Carl Jasper and he wrote some good books that I really enjoyed uh, reading about. God. One of the books was God and Astronomers is one of the titles. And he ends the book by saying, he said, I think I fear that at the end end, end of, of science, we're going we're to find the scientists uh, climbing up the cliff of knowledge and reaching the very top and looking over the pinnacle and finding a band of theologians that have been sitting there ever since the beginning of time. <laughs> so he, he was really wrestling with this whole idea of, of, of what he's seeing in astronomy. I mean, just seeing the grandeur of it all. In fact, he goes on to say we do know there was a big bang we just don't know what happened one second before that. And then he goes on to say, we would need revelation for that. <laughs> so right after he made that statement, a number of Christian leaders contacted him. said, so we'd be glad to talk because God's given us revelation. You're exactly right. We need revelation. He's given it to us. And so I don't know how that ended up. I do know, uh, some, you know some notable Christian leaders reached out to him to talk to him after that point. But he would be a soft agnostic. He didn't say you can't know. He just said he didn't know. So soft agnosticism is just someone who says I don't know. He's not saying it's not. It's not he's not saying it's impossible. No, he's saying I don't know. Okay, hard agnosticism claims that God is unknowable. That is, God cannot be known. The hard agnostic claims that we cannot know God or reality. It's impossible to know whether God exists. Now, Kant, Immanuel Kant, is a major proponent of that. A philosopher, in fact, Kant wrote in one of his books. I like what he wrote when. He said, uh, if you really want to sound like a brilliant philosopher, just write in such a way that no one understands what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay, so let's evaluate. Uh, First of all, complete hard agnosticism is self-defeating. It reduces to the self-destructive claim that one knows enough about reality in order to affirm that nothing can be known about reality. All right, stop there. You see what they're saying? So the Harding Gnostics saying, you can't know anything about reality. Well, they're, they're making the statement that they know something about reality. That you can't know anything about reality. So it's a self-defeating statement. It doesn't make any sense to hold that position. Okay? So this statement contains within itself all that is necessary to falsify it. For if one knows something about reality, then he, can sure, he surely cannot affirm in the same breath that all reality is un- unknowable. And if one knows nothing whatsoever about reality, then he has no basis whatsoever for making a statement about reality. Total agnosticism is self-defeating because it assumes some knowledge about reality in order to deny any knowledge about reality. You guys follow that? So it doesn't make any sense to say you can't know God. Just because they don't know him, to then make a statement is they must know everything in order to say that. So they're making a statement about reality uh, that really proves that you can know something. Okay, now definition and evaluation of skepticism. The skeptic neither affirms nor denies God's existence. In contrast to the agnostic, the skeptic does not say it's impossible to know. The skeptic claims to take a much more tentative attitude toward knowledge. He is not sure that God is or is not, nor is he sure whether man can or cannot know God. The complete skeptic believes that one should suspend all, suspend judgment on all philosophical questions. Hence, the complete skeptic is not sure of anything. Uh, stop for a second. There was a Greek skeptic a uh, long time ago, philosopher. He sat by a river, and he said, and, he, and he said, uh, you can never stick your finger in the same river twice. His whole point being because the time you pull your finger out and put it back in, the river's changed. He says, knowledge is like that since it's so changing, we cannot know anything. And then another philosopher came along and said, actually, you cannot stick your finger in the same river once. As soon as you stick it in there, the river's moving and changing as you have your finger in it. So we can't know anything. So he says, so I. So he went and sat underneath the tree and decided not to have conversation with anybody because he thought knowledge was, was impossible you see how absurd it gets as you start to have some of this line of thinking; It becomes pretty unlivable. Okay, so uh, there's several reasons uh, several reasons to support this this view, and this is why this is what the skeptic would argue in favor of skepticism. They would argue there are numerous perspectives on any given subject, and deception of uh, sense perception. You can be deceived just like we've seen somebody do a magic act, right? And you can be deceived by your perception. And all arguments are really equal, they'd argue. Uh, and we cannot know cause connections. And there's a fact, the fragmentary nature of finite knowledge. And David Hume, if you're really interested in ever reading more about skepticism, David Hume, the British skeptic. Now let's evaluate it for a moment. Now, skepticism, this is why this, this shows that skepticism is also self defeating. Skepticism does not suspend judgment on all things. A skeptic is certain. That skepticism is true. And so it's self-defeating. You see the point there? In other words, a skeptic is saying, you, you know, to be a true skeptic, you suspend judgment on everything. Yet they're not suspending judgment on what they believe about skepticism. See, so it's a self-defeating argument. And uh, why doubt if there is no reason for doubt? And uh, what we're saying is there's overwhelming evidence, so we don't need to doubt. And absolute doubt is impossible for it's self-defeating. Again, do you see why absolute doubt would be self-defeating? If you absolutely doubt everything, well, then, then how can you, you're sure about your absolute doubt? It doesn't make sense. And when you bring it down to livability, no one's a total skeptic. I mean, they actually they actually have to have some confidence in some things to even live life. Okay. Now here's what I want you guys to understand. All that's just for background. But here's here's. I just want you guys to know some steps on how to take someone from hard agnosticism to soft agnosticism, or actually start with atheism. Okay, so you got somebody who's an atheist, and, and this is this is how you would you talk to them. All right, so to the atheist, he says, "I know that God does not exist." Okay, now my response, your response to that is, you know, are you omniscient yourself? I mean, you have to know everything to know there's no God. So you, to say you're limited in knowledge, and you, if, you, if you agree you have limited knowledge, it's possible that God could exist outside of your knowledge. So you can't say for sure you know there's no God. Okay? And so so that's what you ask here. How then can you be sure that God does not exist? Could his existence be beyond your limited knowledge to which you admit? Now he may ask you, do you know everything? Well, do you know everything? And your answer is, of course not. And his response may be, then how do you know God exists for you, too? It must be all-knowing if, if you believe that God exists. And your answer would be, that's a logical mistake because I do not need to be omniscient to know that God exists. I simply need to be able to know partially. In other words, I do not need infinite knowledge to know if the infinite God exists. Whereas I do need infinite knowledge to know if the infinite God does not exist. Or else his existence may be beyond the scope of very finite Knowledge. In any case, hopefully this dialogue will move him from atheism to hard agnosticism, which claims God cannot be known. Okay, so now you want to take him from atheism to hard agnosticism. Just get the person to realize you can't, you can't be for sure God is not exist. You can't be sure about that. And all you want to do is, is agree to that point. You can't be sure about that. It's possible God could exist and it's just beyond your knowledge. And he says, well, that's true. Okay, so you're not an atheist anymore. You're just a hard agnostic. Alright, so now to the hardy Gnostic who claims that God is unknowable, you should explain to him that such a statement is self defeating. To say that God is unknowable is a knowledge claim about God. For it is a knowledge claim about God, then God must for it is a knowledge claim about God, then God must be completely unknowable. If the door is open to know at least one thing about God, then it's possible that other things about God are knowable. Hence, the hard agnostic would have to admit that it's not that God is unknowable, rather that He Himself does not know God, which is now called soft agnosticism. So now he's a hard agnostic, and you basically say, "Okay, now so you're saying you can't know anything about God?" And you answer, and he says, uh, "Yes. Well, you're saying something right there that you know something about God that He's unknowable. So if there is something. So you can know something about God. you just prove it." So you're not a hard agnostic anymore. You're a soft agnostic. You just don't know. And he finally admits, okay, I don't know. I just don't know. And I gives you step three. And uh, so now with regard to the soft agnostic, former atheist and hard agnostic who says, I do not know God. You must recognize that such a claim is no threat to the Christian faith and gospel. Such a person you position intellectually step one, since atheism must uh, be but is not, now, omniscient and God is knowable, step two. It's a hard agnostic claim that God is unknowable, self-defeating. Then let me tell you about the God who exists, whom I know personally and you can know personally too through Jesus Christ. So all you're, all you're saying there is simply this. You're saying, okay, uh, you start off an atheist and said that you just can't know that It's impossible to know God. And then you say, well, is it possible that that's since you have a limited knowledge that God is just outside of your knowledge. Well, that's possible because I'm not omniscient. Okay, so you're no longer an atheist. You're just a hardy master. God is just unknowable, and you say, "Well, wait a second. You're saying he's totally unknowable. Yet you know something about him that he's unknowable. So that's self-defeating. So you finally get to realize that just, just they don't know. Just say, okay, you just don't know. Well, great." I didn't know either one time, but there is revelation given to us on how to know that. And that's where you share the gospel. That's where you share your story. That's where you share your testimony, you know, about knowing Christ. And because God gave us this revelation in his Word, he to be to be prophets and apostles to his own son, Jesus, and he shared the gospel. So basically, I just want you guys to kind of, you know, when you start to talk to somebody, again, we want this to be a very practical course here. You run across with somebody, and, and people are so nonchalant about, uh, I just don't believe in God. You know? You know what, why don't you believe? A lot of times, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with philosophical arguments. What happened is, well, because I prayed when I was a kid, my mother was sick and she died. And that's why I don't believe. I was on an airplane one time with a Jewish lady, and she was... She was, this was 20 years ago, and she was probably, I mean, she was old enough that she had uh, remembered the Holocaust. It was a great, great vivid memory. And I, was, I kept I kept talking to her about the Lord on the plane, and I could tell she was getting really agitated. I said, can I just ask you uh, what you believe? And she said, I'm an atheist. I said, okay, why? Because of the Holocaust that was it it wasn't because of all some philosophical argument it was just simply how could there be a God who would allow that kind of evil and we're going to get to that question later because that's a good question but that's, what, that's why a lot, of, a lot of people and you can when, you, when I talk to somebody about the Lord and, and, and they have all this anger that rises up and I, and I just ask sometimes can I ask you why you're so angry what happened? There's something that happened that, that's really causing them to be angry. And they're angry at God, and God let them down in some way. And, and I just want to, notice, and to say what it is. What is it? And admit it. Let's talk about it. What is it that happened? And, and, uh, and so, so again, but understand that uh, what you want to do is you want to get them to a place where you just want to say, "Hey, there's there is a there is a there is a truth." of Christ and you share the gospel. That's what you want to get them to understand. Okay, so I want to give you guys a flow of what we're going to talk about today. So again, hopefully we, I, mean, I think I had 25 signs, so I got 30 Probably, but we're a few short. So is you might be running back. But uh, let's pass these around. I want to give you the flow of, of what we're going to talk about. <coughs> In this class. <clears throat> Again, we want to be we're trying to give a reasoned understanding of why to somebody to why Christianity is the one true faith, the one true religion. Okay? Okay, so this right here is kind of the flow we're going to follow in our time together. So if we go ahead and look at this handout. Orthodox Christianity claims that Jesus of Nazareth was God in human flesh. This doctrine is absolutely essential to true Christianity. If it is true, then Christianity is unique and authoritative. If not, then Christianity does not differ in kind from other religions. The deity and authority of Jesus Christ lies at the heart of Christian apologetics. The basic logic of this apologetic for Christianity is as follows, okay? So here's the steps. I want you to understand this flow, and then we're going to go through and talk about each of these steps, all right? First of all, God exists. Now we're going to go through several ways that we can, uh, can actually argue the logic and reason of the existence of God. All right, number two, miracles are possible since God exists. If, if, if number one is true, then number two is true. If God exists and miracles are possible, no longer do we have a naturalistic universe, we have a universe of theism, and we'll explain that. All right, number three, miracles confirm Christ to be God. All right, particularly uh, the resurrection. So now, since, since we have a, a theistic universe where God exists, Theism just simply means there is a God that is independent of his creation, okay? He is an infinite, eternal God, independent of his creation. So God exists, therefore miracles are possible, and these miracles will confirm Christ to be God. Number four, the New Testament is a a historically reliable record of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now understand, all we're saying right here is we're not saying number four, the Bible is the Word of God. We're saying number four, the Bible is a historically reliable record. That's all we're saying at number at this point. Number four. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go further later, but that's all we're saying at this point. We, we can prove that the that the New Testament is a historically reliable record of the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, number five, Jesus taught that He was God incarnate. So in this historically reliable book, Jesus actually made the claim that he was God come in the flesh. Alright? Number six. Jesus proved himself to be God incarnate by doing three things. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, by living a sinless and miraculous life, and by rising from the dead. Okay? So, so now in this historically reliable document, We find out that Jesus, who claimed to be God, proved his claim doing these three things. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He lived a sinless, miraculous life, and he rose from the dead. All right, number seven, therefore, Jesus of Nazareth is God, God come in the flesh. That means whatever Christ, who is God, teaches must be true. So whatever Jesus says has to be true then if he's God. Number nine, what Jesus taught was that the Old Testament is the written word of God. And he promised his disciples to write the New Testament. So Jesus, who's proven himself to be God, this documented for us in this historically reliable document, he actually says of this document, this historically reliable document we call the Bible, he says the Old Testament is the word of God, and he promises the New Testament after he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes, would fill the apostles, and they would write the New Testament, and it would be the Word of God. Okay. Number 10, therefore, it is true on the confirmed divine authority of Jesus Christ that the Bible is the written Word of God. So, by the way, and that's the answer to the question, why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? The answer is because Jesus says so. All right. But you see here how we get to that point. I give it. in a new member's small group, some of you have been to that group, where I, I give a more of a condensed way to understand this flow. But this right here is a, gonna, we're going to flesh out a little bit more here. So number 10, therefore it is true, on the confirmed divine authority of Jesus Christ, that the Bible is the written word of God. Number 11, the Bible teaches that Christianity is the only true religion. Number 12, therefore Christianity is the only true religion. Okay, so that's the flow. And what we're going to do is we're going to take each piece of this and we're and and going to develop it. But I want you to—I don't want us to lose our ball in the weeds here, okay? So this is the flow, though, to understanding how we get to where we got. All right? So we're going to start off <clears throat> with understanding these arguments for the existence of God. <clears throat> because in order for us to be able to develop this whole scheme we're talking about here, this flow, is we have to... It has to be a theistic universe. God has to exist. Let's keep passing down. So, if somebody is just one piece of paper, two-sided. There's lots of there's lots of arguments for the existence of God, but I want to just give you what I think are the easiest ones for people to use. And uh, so, pass that down. We're going to basically talk about teleological and cosmological arguments. Now, how many of you guys, as that's going around, how many of you guys have read the book by C.S. Lewis entitled Mere Christianity? Okay, some of you have. By the way, C.S. Lewis is just a brilliant mind, a great gift from God to the church. But his argument in Mere Christianity, I'm not even covering on this handout, but I'll, I'll, I'll say something about it. And basically, it's the moral argument for the existence of God. And the moral argument for the existence of God is simply that there is a sense. Yeah, take, uh, take one of the letters and come back with it. Okay, yeah, you can go ahead and do that, yeah. Thanks, Israel. Okay, so the moral argument for the existence of God goes like this. There is a sense of right and wrong in every human. Where did that come from? When you can find, you can go back to the deepest jungles and find some tribe that's never been around anything else, anybody else, and they still have a sense of right and wrong. It may be different, a little different, but it's, they still have a sense of. It. There is a sense of oughtness in people. I ought to have done that. Where does that come from? I mean, if there's no God and we're just, as we just evolved from, from you know, animals, where does oughtness come from? You know, this the sense that I should do the right thing where does that come from? So that's, you know, so because it really comes back to the fact that there is a moral God who us in his image. That's where it comes from. And so, but I'm not even going to cover that argument. That is a great argument. And, you should, and I just, uh, you know, if you haven't read that book, it's worth reading called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And So I want to give you guys, uh, these These are pretty simple arguments, but uh they're ones that I think you can remember and be able to use. The teleological argument uh, is basically simply this. <clears throat> All design implies a designer. Great design implies a great designer. There is a great design in the world like that of a great machine. Therefore, there must be a great designer of the world. Okay, that's basically the idea of if you were walking in a field and you came across a watch and you picked it up, you'd say, wow, isn't it amazing what time and chance are put together in a little bit of erosion and we have a watch? No one would do that, right? If you found a watch, what would you conclude? You would conclude there must be a watchmaker because watches don't just happen. It, it takes a watchmaker to make a watch. This is a simple argument from design. And there's great design in the world in which we live. In fact, uh, I wrote my uh, my master's thesis on an apologetical defense of the doctrine of creation, because I, I have an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. And I kind of wanted to use both, both my science and my, my theology to drop my thesis. And, well, was interesting is I wrote my thesis in 1983, and they were just understanding DNA in 1983. And we think DNA; we've understood DNA all the time, but DNA is a pretty recent understanding. Right? We're using it now in all kinds of you know, legal, legal issues. But what they what they said was on articles is they said DNA has information in it. But we this is two evolutions, evolution, evolution. we don't know where this information came from well where does information always come from information always comes from an informer always design always comes from a designer I mean if you went out to the Grand Canyon you could could look at the Grand Canyon and you could say erosion caused this if you went to Mount Rushmore you wouldn't say erosion caused that would you? you say, no, some guys got up there and they chiseled out those four faces at Mount Rushmore. Erosion does not cause that. And so we we, we know that, that that design is caused by a designer. And when you start, if you you study, the more you study, if you study science honestly, then you'll see all kinds of design that's screaming for a designer. Which is the argument from Romans chapter... One basically, you see, you look at creation, right? you see, you see it. There must be a creator. Who made this. All right. So this is the first argument. It's called teleological argument. But you need to remember that word. Just remember the argument from design. Okay, design requires a designer. Okay. Also, awesome. look at the next one. It goes the uh, design of thermodynamics. <coughs> Number one, whatever had a beginning had a beginner. The universe had a beginning, as evidenced by the second law of thermodynamics, which simply is this. The universe is running down and hence cannot be eternal. Stop right there. All right. Right now, they can measure that the sun is cooling off. Okay? The sun is not getting hotter. It's getting cooler. What does that mean? That means it had to have a beginning. It had to have a start. For it to be getting cooler, it had a start. It had to have a start. It had to have a beginning. And all beginnings require a beginner, okay? So the universe is running down, hence it cannot be eternal. The second law of thermodynamics applies to the whole universe so far as we know. A rewinding of the universe on its own is not probable, for there is no scientific way to explain this. Here's what they got to do. <clears throat> you know, the, the scientists, the, like y'all, remember Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. You know, wrote the, the book of the Cosmos, and he was he was considered like a, a champion of the evolutionists. And he had a TV program that I tuned in. Every once was one because I was interested to see how he was going to argue some of the things he's going to argue, because he he's arguing cause effect, cause <clears throat> effect. But he also realized that cause effect, if you argue cause-effect, cause-effect, eventually they're heading have a beginning to the universe. He realized that, so here's what he does. He stands by a pool of water and takes a pebble. He throws it in the water, and what happens, ripples come out. So that's when the pebble hits. And he says, every cause has an effect. So far so good. And then he says this. Then he has, he has the film go backwards. He has the ripples come together and the pebble pop out. He says, that means there has to be a time where the universe, even though it's not expanding, will reach a critical mass and then begin to contract all the way down until you know, it explodes again. So, so he comes up with what he calls the, is the oscillating universe. Span, contract, span, contract. One problem is there is absolutely zero evidence of that ever happening, things ever turning around. But he has to argue that because he has a naturalistic worldview. There is no God in his worldview, so he has to explain it in a way without a God, And that's the only way he can explain it. In other words, after a while it starts to become kind of silly the arguments that they will come up with. Okay. So anyway, so the universe had to have a beginning. Number three, and therefore, the universe had a beginner. This beginner must be intelligence, since he engaged in advanced planning. In other words, this obviously was planned in the mind of God. So this, this, this beginner had to be intelligent because of the design. A designer has to have intelligence, right, to design. This beginner had to be intelligent, and this beginner had to be moral because he obviously valued his creation. He valued it. Evidence and how he made it, how he made us. Why? Why is the sun the exact distance it is from the Earth? If it's any closer or any further, we freeze or burn. Why is it? I mean, you can see that he cares about his creation. Everything he designed is so we have a good place to live. So we have. So this beginner had to be moral and intelligent. So already we're we're getting closer and closer to the God of the Bible, right? By simply using some. Basic logic. So that's a teleological argument. It's just argument from design. All design implies a designer. Okay. Now, cosmological argument is another one that's not hard. And simply this. And Jonathan Edwards, the you know during one of the great revivalists in American uh, American history, he, he makes a real simple cosmological argument. It's simply this. Number one, something exists. I exist. Something exists. Nothing cannot cause something. Therefore, there must exist a necessary eternal being who is the efficient cause of the something that exists. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. Basically this. What he's saying is this. If you walk walk into a field and you saw a giant ball, a giant ball in the field, that ball exists. You know that that ball did not come from nothing. Something, you know, actually caused that ball. All right? So, if you look at a big ball, the earth, something had to cause that. That's basically Jonathan Edwards' argument. It is cause-effect. Now what I'm going to do is, in B, is I'm going to kind of unpack it here. And so, because uh, I'm using some of my own words here, I'm not claiming that. I'm the first one who ever came up with this. I'm just... I just don't want to put anyone else's name there. They may not like the way I did it. So I put my name because this is how I'm doing it, okay? All right, here it is. The universe exists. Surely every scientist would grant this premise since his very study of the universe proposes the existence of the universe. Now, you might think, do you really got to start you know, proving that the universe exists? You, I mean, you do actually because there'll be people you talk to say, how do we know anything exists? How do we know this is not just a dream? You know, so people can get so ridiculous after a while, you're like, okay, i got to go eat lunch or something, you know? <laughs> All right, so the universe exists, step one. All right, step two, nothing cannot cause something. The principle of causality is virtually unquestioned by the scientific community. So nothing cannot cause something. That's never happened. There's never been a time when nothing caused something. All right? So, in fact, I was talking to a, a professor one time at a university, and I went. I got to step two. I said, "You I, nothing cannot cause something." Did you agree with that? And he could lean back. He kept looking up. He says, "I don't know if I give you that one." I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "I know where he said because I know where you're going with if I give you that one." <laughs> okay. Therefore, there must exist a necessary and eternal being. And let's explain what that means. First of all, what does necessary mean? This being must necessarily exist. Since something does now exist, the universe, and nothing cannot produce something, then something must necessarily exist. It means since we doubt now have something here in the universe, and that's something that exists exists necessarily. It may or may not exist. He must exist because we exist because it does not exist. You understand what the word necessary, how we're using the word necessary. Something must necessarily exist. All right. And B, this being must exist, must eternally exist. Since something now exists, the universe, and nothing cannot produce something, there's something that must have always been. Yeah, did you track it with me? That's something that's caused this something, that something must have always been. Alright, let me explain why why that's the case. Okay, first of all, uh, this necessary and eternal being cannot be the universe itself. And that's what uh, there's some theologians, by the way, at uh, Perkins School of Theology over at SMU, and they've come up with a, uh, something called panentheism, not pantheism, panentheism, in which uh, they say that, that God, there's a, there is a, an actual God and a potential God, and it's all the universe, so that's where the pantheism part comes. to God and universe is the same, but He is becoming perfect. He is evolving into being infinite, and eternal. It's, it's really a weird thing they come up with, and it's, it's totally refutable, easily refutable. But anyway, An God a, God. a potential God. I think they, they, he could potentially be eternal, potentially be infinite, but right now he's evolving, and I said we're all evolving with him. We're all part of him, and we're all evolving. It's called process theology, panentheism. Okay, anyways, I'll throw these little things in. I hope that's not making it worse worse for you. Okay, so the universe cannot be eternal. Why can't the universe be eternal? All right. The universe is a chain of cause-effect relationships. No chain of cause-effect relationships can be eternal because it cannot be an infinite regresses of cause of being. Or to put it another way, one would never be able to get to the present age if the causes went back infinitely. Okay, I look up everybody's silence. All right, so what we're saying is this: there's cause effect, cause effect, cause effect. The universe is full of cause effect. The universe can't be it can't be eternal because you can't get back. You can't. You, you never get to the present time if the cause effects keep going back. In other words, if there was never any beginning, you would never get to the present time. There had to be a beginning of cause effects to get to the present time. Let's think that for a minute. Okay, so the universe is is, is cause effect, cause effect, but also, number two, the universe is running down. That's another way to look at it. Therefore, it must have a beginning. According to the second law of thermodynamics, everything in the universe is running down. Everything has a half-life. Everything is is decaying, and deteriorating. And the only way that you can, all right, the only way that you can go against this process is with intelligence and energy and energy converter. All right. So you guys, you guys go car today. give you here. Car or your car. Now, what your car has—the reason you know, you, that car can do what it does—is because it has an energy converter in it, to combust the combustion engine. You can go out in your car you and you can get gasoline poured all over your car, and it's not going to the car is not going to do anything. You got to put the gas in the energy converter. The gas is energy, so you have energy. The engine is the energy converter. Energy converters require intelligence (coughs) for them to work. Okay, so the second law of thermodynamics is everything is running down, running down. You say, no, but look, things aren't all running down. And and they'll point to the sun. We have this energy source, the sun. But why do plants grow? What is the energy converter in a plant? Photosynthesis. See, so you have energy converter, and then what happens? You know, is, is you have growth. Anywhere you have growth, anywhere you have something positive happening, there's going to be an, there's going to be energy, and energy converter that requires design. If you leave it alone, it's going to just it's just going to deteriorate and be chaotic. You know, you leave, don't, don't clean your house for a while. What happens it?
1: It's
0: a mess, right? Well, what do you do? You put energy into it, right? And you've you, and you, you, and you got your energy converter yourself. It's called food is your energy, right? What do you do? You put the food in, your, your stomach. what? The energy converter. All right, so now, and then you clean the house. Now the house is clean. So that's how you go against, that's the only way we can stop this process. So take the whole universe now. So the whole universe is running down, right? means you had to have a beginner. So you have this beginner who is... Pure energy himself, and he is made, and he and he and, he's, and he makes he makes the universe run because he's energy, and he's got all and he's got all kinds of energy converters that are by design for it to work. And so, so this basically, this whole idea of let's I'm gonna walk back through this argument, real simple cosmological argument, is simply this: something now exists. The universe exists. Nothing cannot produce something. So something must you know, must have always existed in order for us to not exist. And that's something that something, not only is eternal, but also he's, he has to be infinite. Let me tell you what. I don't want to cover that in here. All right. Now, he has to be infinite because the whole universe, the universe is finite. How can we prove the, the universe is finite? Well, the universe is is simply... Okay, let's just take a piece. Is this chair
1: finite?
0: Okay, it has limitations, is not it? It's, it's, it's finite. It has spatial limitations. It's got weight. But it's finite. This chair has a half-life. it long enough time. That chair, that chair will not... That chair is not eternal. That chair will not last. It will slowly go through decay. right? Every part of the universe is finite. Everything we've ever measured is finite. So the universe is the sum of its parts. It has to be finite. But there has to be an infinite who is not limited like that. An eternal, infinite God who created the whole thing. He must, he must, there must be one who is what we call the uncaused causer. He has to be uncaused himself. He has to be eternal. He has to be infinite. As you've already seen, he has to be moral. He has to be intelligent. All these things are the God of the Bible. Okay? But just, you know, arguing, that might be a little bit harder argument for you to have with somebody. because I don't want you to get your ball lost in the weeds. That's why the first one I want to start with and the Zion is the easiest one for most people to get. You know, just an argument from design. Every design requires a designer. Okay. Now, the, uh, I get your hand out of here. Yeah. Same questions you get to ask about that universe. There was a. There was no beginning. No, the secret that universe still is, that universe is still required to be a beginner. So all it does is push the question back one step. It doesn't help. In fact, there was uh, during the one, of the. one of the evolutionists came up with a theory that, that uh, he realized he realize some of the challenges with gradualism and evolution, and how it really doesn't answer. I mean, Darwin was a gradualist. Let me make a little side thing about evolution. Okay? Darwin was a gradualist, and Darwin said once the you know, once the fossil column is all in, there'll be transitions between every step. He was sure of that. Well, the, the fossil columns in there are transitions. Bible says God made everything after his own kind. I mean, you can have what we call microevolution within a kind—different kinds of finches that, in the Galapagos Islands, you know—but we're not—we're not ever seeing a you know, cat become a dog. You know, all kinds of cats and all kinds of dogs, but a cat doesn't become a dog. So the Bible says God made everything after his own kind. So God, sure enough, the fossil column—you know—we do not see any transitions from one kind to another. But that was we didn't find all that out until Darwin was gone. I believe if Dr. Darwin was alive today, he wouldn't believe in evolution. At least not macro evolution. Kind of one of the kind, because he, he believed that column would show every little step of evolution. And it doesn't. Okay, so what, so these guys from Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould, was, uh, he was uh, they call him Stevie Wonder. He's passed on now, and he came up with something. Realizing that gradualism was a problem, he came up with something called punctuated equilibria. Where he says that what happens is, is, is there's just there's a jump from one kind to another. It just jumps. Then it jumps again. That's why in the column, the fossil column, we just see jumps. Well... So he comes with that theory. Now you've got these evolutionists arguing with each other. So the graduals say there's no way the punctuated punctuate equilibrium could possibly happen because they would never survive the jump. The survival, you mean, it wouldn't work. Well, then, you know, the punctuated equilibrium guys are saying to the graduals, well, you can't be right because we have the fossil column and there aren't any, you know, any transitions. So you see what they're doing? They're arguing against each other, realizing that both of them can't, either one of them can't be true. But they don't even want to consider that God might be involved here, because they've already decided there's a naturalistic universe. There is no God. That's their presupposition. They start with that, so there's no room for there. We uh, Why do you think uh, Satan uh, causes or causes men to believe in that? If he's trying to set himself as God in the end times, if he's trying to cause a lot of atheists. Remember, Satan's main goal is that people don't come to Christ. And he doesn't mind using all kinds of different ways to keep people from Christ. And so that's that's, that's just remember that's what he's after. He's after he does not want you to follow Christ, and if you are following Christ, he wants to get you stuff following Christ. And everything and that's that's his main goal. And so yeah, he's he uses certain things. Okay, so this is a guy just i just ask people, let's bring it down practical conversation, you know. I ask people this simple question. First of all, I, I, I kind of have it in my, in my mind. Here's, here's what I use when I talk to people. I have an acrostic with the word form, F-O-R-M. I have that in my mind, F-O-R-M. This isn't on your hand now. Whereas, I, 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 F stands for family. i talking about your family. Tell about your family. F on my family. O stands for occupation. So what do you do? got job. I mean, ask asking what my job is. I'm a pastor all the time. They give me <laughs> sometimes good opportunities, sometimes not such good opportunities. <laughs> What's your occupation? What do you do? Okay, art stands for religion. Uh, well, did you grow up in church? Do you have any spiritual background? Hey, people don't mind that question. I just ask some questions. What's your spiritual background? Oh, I grew up in this church or whatever. I, did, or I haven't had any, whatever. And then if they ask me mine, that's when I'll, 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 I'll tell them my story. I'll say, well, I grew up like this, but then I came to understand this. And I was share the gospel. So F, family, O, occupation, R, religion. Then M stands for message. The message then is uh, is basically, hey, can I just tell you, you know, my spiritual journey a little bit? But tell your story. They don't feel like you are preaching to them at that point, right? Just, just tell your story. And as you tell your story, share the gospel. And I just, you know, I, I tell how I came to know the gospel. I thought this was how it was, but then I learned this. And you just tell your story and message. Uh, and a lot of times I ask a simple question, a real simple question. Has anyone ever shown you from the Bible how you can know whether or you're going to heaven when you die? And I like, say, no? May I show you? Sure. Has anyone ever shown you how you can, you know, no one lets you go to heaven. Come Most people answer no. You think in America, like this, oh yeah, I've heard it. But I tell you what, most people answer no. No, they showed me. They might have heard some preachers, something. No one ever sat down and opened the Bible up and showed them, you know, some simple verses about what it means to know Christ as your word. And I, and I, and I got, to, I use used these gospel tracks a lot. I like. I like to actually show him about. One time I was sharing the gospel with a guy, and I kept and I had him read the verses. I said, "Read that." And he read. And he said, "That's really in there." And when he said that. I thought, "I'm going to be sure I always do this now." Because when you use the gospel tract, sometimes I'm not sure they are really convinced that's in there. But when he actually read, he said, "That's really in there." I said, "Yeah, it is. It's in there." Okay, but now, during that conversation, they say, well, I, you know, I'm not sure about it when I got exists. And I would just, the average person, the, 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 the simple argument from design is, is plenty. Well, let me ask you this. If you came across a watch, what would, would you conclude? Would you conclude that, would you conclude as a watchmaker somewhere? Yeah. Well, let's, don't you believe that amazing design, just think about the design of the universe, the design of the human body, the design of the eyeball. I and mean, there's so it's amazing, all these things do think I'm a part designer? By the way, the eye is something evolutionists have a lot of problems with, how the eye ever evolved. They really they don't know what to do with it. But uh, and so most, most will say, yeah, it's true. But uh, typically, if someone just shots throwing a lot of smoke screens, I'll just ask them, you know, do you really? I'll help you answer every question you have if you really want answers. If you really don't want answers, if you really don't even want this to be true, I and mean, that's not that's not what I said because I've spent hours and hours with somebody and then finally just you know, said, like I just don't want to wait." I said, well, "I wish I'd known that three hours ago." <laughs> but if the scientist asking me, I'll help you if you really if you really have a real genuine question, I'll work hard to get answers for you. And if you got a question I don't answer, I'll, I'll do my best to get an answer. And so, but, but the argument for design is the simplest one. The cosmological argument this is this cause effect. Eventually, I mean, the universe is a the fact. That there's, there had to be a cause, and that cause had to always be. Because he can't, he can't. You know. Yeah. Actually, I started. I started to tell you about this one guy that came up with. Oh yeah, this guy came up with uh, that. His evolution, he came up with the fact that someone from outer space, from another, from another planet, came and and started the evolution process because you know, yeah. they realized they had some real problems in different parts of evolution. So so, so some, some space creature did it, and, and he made this big argument. I think Hoyle was his name. I think. Uh, Anyways, but, uh, but what's the problem with that argument? The problem is, okay, even if you have a space creature and he's flying that, where'd he come from? All you do is put in the back one stuff. Still, there has to be an uncaused causer. There has to be an eternal infinite. It has to be. So all it does, you know, that's why polytheism, many gods, polytheism is ridiculous. Think about it. So what are they, like superheroes? I mean, are these, they the god over just the sea, the god over the mountain, the god over the desert? I mean, so they're finite gods. There still has to be an infinite. The polytheism doesn't answer. There still has to be an infinite, eternal god. So anyway, this polytheism can't be true, pantheism can't be true, pantheism, pan means all, theism God, all is God, all the whole universe is God. It can't be true, why? Because it's finite. There has to be an infinite. There has to be eternal. It's and you don't have to beginning. eternal. It's running down. Alright.
2: Who is uh, Mother
0: Nature? Do do they have an answer? Do they have an answer for? For uh, if you ask them, who is Mother Nature? Who is Mother Nature?
1: Uh Do they have an answer?
3: Oh, yeah, well, they would just say Mother Nature is just nature. But it's, uh, I mean, it's
0: a who or a what? They would say it's a what. They just say that's just terminology. They They wouldn't say there's anything behind it. Guys, I going to take a break. Okay, again, um, I'm going to refer back to the flow here, guys. So that one piece of paper or gives you the flow of what we're trying to get, we start with the existence of God and uh, the cosmological argument I put here, but you can tell the logical argument, argument for design, I think it's the simplest. Easiest one to remember. Easiest one for people to get. And then we're going to go from there. Step two, miracles are possible since God exists. <clears throat> now, the hand on has to do with miracles. And really, this is one you could even skip, because really, if you establish theism, which is there is an eternal, infinite God independent from creation, then miracles are possible. I mean, if, if creation is possible, then miracles are possible, right? So <clears throat> we could skip this one, but I always want to point a few things out here. We'll cover it. I don't think we're going to take time for the whole thing. <clears throat> Well, let's just uh, walk through this uh, this handout a little bit. Okay, worldviews which deny the possibility of miracles. And understand, if somebody's worldview, if you don't establish theism you know, as a worldview, and, and you talk to someone who's a naturalist, that automatically, if they're a naturalist, they believe that there is no God, everything is just, is just the natural world. That worldview presupposes no miracles. Um, in other words, so, 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 really, if if you, you really got to start with getting them to have the right world view, you know, they need to be, a, there needs to be a, an acceptance of theism. Yeah, okay, there's a God. Well, then miracles are possible if there's a God. If there is no God, if they have a world view that says there is no God, then automatically their world view presupposes there can't be no miracles since there's no God. Therefore, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Say what I'm saying. So it's important to make sure you don't... We start with the right place. We start with with, with that God exists. What we're trying to do is establish a theistic worldview. That's what we're trying to do. Do you think that very many people really
1: know what their
0: worldview is? Well, they may may not know what their worldview is, but they have one. You know, even if they can't identify it, they have one. They they have a worldview. They have a basis on which they understand things. And our school system now, for the most part, is teaching... uh, our children a naturalistic worldview. It's not teaching a theistic worldview now. In the '60s, in public school, there was uh, there was a theistic worldview was taught. In fact, that you had prayer in school. The fact that you had Bible reading in 1962, and there were Bible readings every in a Dallas school system every morning. There was a Bible reading. Okay, so there's prayer and Bible readings. So what are we doing? We're teaching kids theism. We're teaching there is a God, there's a creator. Now we have a, it's not being taught now. Naturalism is being taught. Basically, naturalistic worldview, which is atheism, but they, they, they wouldn't go that strong with it. But they, they're teaching it. There's no God. It's just it's the natural order of how things work. Okay, so we start with God exists. Therefore, miracles are possible. So with that alone, we could go. We could skip this step. But I want to talk a little bit about it. Okay. <clears throat> worldviews which deny the possibility of miracles. First worldview that denies the possibility of miracles is naturalistic worldview. All right? Number one, in a naturalist universe, nature is the whole show. I.e. nature is all that is, ever was, and ever will be. Number two, where nature is the whole show, show there is no supernatural realm. Number three, therefore, where there is no supernatural realm, there can be no supernatural events. This is miracles. Hence, there can be no miracles in a naturalistic universe. <clears throat> I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, I'll say this to another point. All right. B. Miraculous events are not possible in a pantheistic universe. In a pantheistic world, the natural and the supernatural are one. God equal nature. By the way, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, they all come out of pantheism. Their worldview is pantheism. When you talk about becoming one with the One, you know we're all part of the One. We're all part of God. Pan all theism, God. We're all part of God. So that so really, a Hindu already, you know, he's already thinking a pantheistic or slash polytheistic polytheistic worldview. I talked to a Hindu one time about Christ, and he said, "Yeah, I believe Jesus. I believe Jesus. You say God, Jesus?" I said, "Really." He says, yeah, you got a picture of him? I said, what do you mean? Yeah, uh, you don't have a picture of him? He pulls the wallet out. He says, I have a picture of my God. He pulled a picture out of one of his Hindu gods. He said, you don't have a picture of your God? He said, why don't you give me a picture of Jesus? He says, I'll carry my wallet, too. In other words, he just added him to his his, his list of gods, right? But see, that's why in order for him to understand the gospel, You don't just talk about Jesus being, you know, the Son of God. You've got to go all the way back and establish theism. There is only one God, not many. And uh, in order for him to understand the uniqueness of Jesus, all right? Okay. So in a pantheistic universe, world, the natural or supernatural are one. right, where the natural and the supernatural are indistinguishable, miracles are not identifiable. Others other miracles cannot be distinguished from nature. If, if everything is nature and everything is God, then whatever happens, you would say, it's not a miracle, it's just natural. Because it's all in God. See what I'm saying? Okay, so hence there can be no miracles in a pantheistic world. It's, it's, real, it's real similar to a naturalistic world because if you believe that all God, God is nature, then there's no place for a miracle because everything's just happening naturally.
1: Is that like God is in the tree?
0: Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Also, miracles, events are not possible in a deistic universe. Uh, you know what deism is. Deism is simply this. Deism, like God, God started it all like he wound a clock up, and now he's just letting it run. By natural law. That's deism. In other words, God did create the universe, Deists deist would say, but he's letting it all run by natural law. There are no miracles. And do you guys know uh, who the deists were, part of our founding fathers? Jefferson the Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Frank. Benjamin Franklin. And all the rest of them were Christians. But Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were deists. That's why Thomas Jefferson took the Bible, took the New Testament, took all the miracles out of it. Because <coughs> he liked the moral teaching of Jesus. But, he, but, he, but because he was a deist and believed everything happened by natural law, there was no place in his worldview for miracles. So he took all the miracles out of the Bible. Said they didn't happen because they couldn't have happened in a deistic world. So Jesus was a good and moral teacher, according to John Thomas Jefferson. Now he would talk about divine providence and things like that, but he's talking about he's still talking in a deistic mindset that God still just wound the clock up and is letting it run. And Benjamin, Franklin was a Benjamin Franklin was at a uh, he was at a revival meeting one time when George Whitfield was preaching. And George Whitfield and uh, and uh, John Wesley were two preachers they really uh, two key guys that really started Methodism in the Methodist Church. And George Whitfield he could preach. as a big guy and he'd preach on the side of a hill and he could preach to twenty thousand people without a microphone. They say he preached till his his throat was bleeding. But he's leading hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Anyway, so, someone saw Benjamin Franklin at a George Whitfield meeting and they asked Franklin, they said, Do you believe what, do you believe what Whitfield's preaching? Because they were surprised he was there. He said, No, I don't believe but he sure believes it. And I can't stay away. <laughs> Okay, so a deistic universe is one where God exists but never causes miracles because, A, he has no power or interest in performing miracles. He kind of started the universe and went on vacation or something. or And, B, he finds it impossible to violate an inviolable natural law he has made. In other words, they say God set everything, the natural, natural law to work in his purposes, and so he doesn't, doesn't intervene. So there's no point in really praying in a deistic universe, right? and uh, there's no and how do you have a relationship with that kind of God you don't okay the world view which allows for the possibility of miracles is theism okay what, what religions in the world today have theism as their world view
1: um,
0: Jewish okay Jewish Jewish religion Christian religion obviously what else I think Islam. Islam you know so they would they would be theists they would believe theism and uh, Buddhism, Hinduism is primarily pantheist and uh, some polytheism, and so you've got uh, so, you know so you you really have to establish a worldview. Okay, so the worldview which allows for the possibility of miracles is theism. The argument for miracles in a theistic universe is based on the nature of God and natural law. And natural law, there is a world that operates by natural law in a regular, predictive way. The world of our sense experience. So Christians we, we don't doubt the reality of natural law. there's some natural law. but also God all and all God and all good and all-powerful God exists beyond nature. The theistic God differs from nature as opposed to pantheism, panentheism, and naturalism. The theistic God has concern for and control over the world as opposed to deism. So we, so the, the the God of theism is a God who's concerned because he is benevolent. He's always benevolent, omnibenevolent. A theistic God is in control because he's all-knowing, all-powerful. He's the cause of all. Also, because a theistic God is omnipotent, he can do anything that is really possible to do. Miracles are possible in a created, contingent universe. Contingent as opposed to necessary. Okay, miracles are, are, are possible in a created, contingent universe. Nothing created is inviolable since God is causing its very existence. What is unviable can be violated by the all-powerful God. In other words, God is the one who can choose to intervene in his own creation. So miracles are possible for the use of God in his created world. Therefore, where God is an omnipotent, Control over nature. Miracles are possible. Miracles are possible in a theistic universe. All we're trying to do at this point is establish if if there is a God who is a theistic God and miracles are possible. It's important that miracles are possible because miracles are going to be key to prove that Jesus is who he says he is. If you don't have a universe where miracles are possible then you can never really prove Jesus is who he says he is. So we're just trying to do this in a logical order. Okay, So theism, God exists, Therefore, miracles are possible. And I'm not going to take time to rest this, but I want you guys to have you can look at it and see what some of the uh, arguments were uh, that uh, against miracles being possible. Yeah. We
1: can't know him personally, part of it. Theism is that God is knowable.
0: Because he is only benevolent, he wants to forgive. But yeah. I don't see
1: how as that.
0: No, I don't think he's he. I do presented that way either by, by Muslims. So how does he fit into the? Well, he's, he, 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 he 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 doesn't say that he he can forgive. It Doesn't say that. I mean, the Muslim says a guy can forgive for sins. The, what it wouldn't say is that that there needed to be a sacrifice. You know a personal relationship. Relationship. Yeah. They they
1: think they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they believe that it's it, it ish- took Ishmael. Off at Ishmael, and they they don't believe Jesus is God. Right? But they, if their God is only benevolent, then in some way, He forgets. and So how does He
0: forgive? They, they, they were just, They're not saying that they're. See, we said there had to be a substitutional atonement of, of Christ in order to have forgiveness, and they would say that was not necessarily God to, to give, choose to forgive. Okay, so guys, there's a so there God exists, there's theism, there's theism. universe, miracles are possible. But our next step is: is the New Testament a reliable document? Okay, that's what we want to argue next. Is the New Testament a reliable document? historical, reliable document. And I'm going to walk us through that a little bit. Again, we're not saying at this point, we're not jumping right to saying the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. All we're saying at this point is we just want to show that the book is reliable. It's historical, it's reliable, it's accurate. That's all we're trying to point out at this point in the process. And start off with this question what would it take for you to believe that something in the past really happened? All right, let's just think about this. If you picked up a newspaper and read it, uh, what would it take for you to believe that uh, that article in the newspaper was, was true, was accurate? Who wrote it? Okay, was it, who wrote it? Was it written by someone that is reliable, someone who is honest, someone who is dependable? All right, what else? Okay, we have other right eyewitnesses. Is he witnesses. Is he getting this firsthand? Uh, is he getting a second hand from someone who was there firsthand? How's he getting his information? That would be important, too. Probably also important that you, uh, that you, when you read it, you understood. That, you know, that you had, when you read it, you also had other confirming reports. That would add to it, wouldn't it? All right. I'm saying take that same basic way of thinking about the New Testament and that is historically reliable. So look at your note. So if you had the confidence that you had the actual report, first of all, concerning the event, number two, that the person who wrote the report was honest and reliable, number three, that you had other ways to verify what the writer said was true. And what we're saying about the New Testament is we have all that. We're saying that we, we, we can show in a moment that we have the actual report of the, concerning the events. We're also going to point out that those who wrote this report, the, the authors of the New Testament were honest and reliable. We talked about that. And also we have other ways to uh, verify what they wrote. Okay, we have several different writers who are speaking about the same events, but we also have some sources outside of the New Testament. Like the Old Testament with the prophecies. Well, that, but I'm thinking even Josephus, and some of his writings, historical writings, that are consistent with, with what was happening. And, and so Cephas is not a he's a Jewish historian. And uh, some of his writings. Okay. All right, so let's look at this. Uh, the authenticity of the New Testament documents. I want you just to see something here. I want you to notice these are all ancient documents. I want to compare. I want us to compare what we have with the New Testament compared to these kinds of documents that people don't really question whether or not they're accurate. All right, so some of these documents, I want you to notice the number of copies of these different documents. All right, some, some like it just have seven, eight, two, three copies. I want you to notice that when they're written and then when the earliest copy was. For example, Caesar is written somewhere between 144 BC, the earliest copy we have is 900 AD. Time spans a thousand years. A thousand years between the original writing and the new, new, newest copy we have. Okay, a thousand years. All right, Plato. His earliest you know written you know 4, twenty seven to three forty seven BC. The earliest copy that we have is 980, AD. So there's twelve hundred years between when he originally wrote it to what to, to the copy we have. All right. And so just see, I just want you to look down, just look down that column. All these different writings, when they wrote them, the time span between when it was written and the earliest copy. You got 1,000 years, 900 years, 1,300 years, 800 years, you know, all the way down to 1,600, 1,500, 1,300, 1,400, 1,200 years. The point being, you know, it's a long time from having an original document all the way to a copy. If you've got Something like twelve hundred years of time. How sure are you that that copy it really is saying what that original really said? Yet that long of time between. Okay. All right. Now compare all that to the New Testament. First of all, we have fifty-three hundred manuscripts of the New Testament. Fifty-three hundred copies. Now we have. And manuscripts, of early versions, twenty-four thousand. So, and you got, uh, and I, it breaks down to all the different, different uh, surviving manuscripts we have. Like you've got the Latin Vulgate to ten thousand, and you got all these that actually quote scriptures. That that we have many many copies of, like to look down here the patristic cit- citations, thirty six thousand citations of the early these early church fathers and what they wrote quoting these different scriptures early on. You know, like by the second or third century, they're already quoting all these different passages in their writings. What's patristic? This is the, the fathers of the faith, fathers of the church, patristic. So these these are the early church fathers, Justin Martyr. Pyrrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Petulian. And, you, and these guys are, are are running in the second and third century. And so you've got, uh, and they're already quoting all the different passages that we have that we can also confirm. You know, but look at the next page here. And the date of the New Testament and its manuscripts. All right, the date of the original composition of the New Testament books. Every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s of the first century. Okay, now the date of the copies of the New Testament manuscripts, we have some fragments of copies within 30 years. We have whole books within 100 years. We have copies. And we have we have almost the whole New Testament within 200 years. I just want you to compare that with the time gap with all those other writings. Okay? And uh, so the accuracy... Of the New Testament manuscripts
1: <clears throat>
0: Whiteboard here. okay so we have yeah, I said 5200 here, 5300 uh, Greek manuscripts and let me explain a little bit about what, what you say when, you know, if it's not you 101 percent accuracy what I mean by that is, is it's accurate where we have even more more written in some some copies let me explain how the copies happen right, when you I want you to think back how they, they made copies Again, we're talking second, third century, fourth century. How do they copy? They didn't have copy machines, right? So how do they copy? There's two different ways they copy. One is I want you to imagine, you know, picture you know some monk-like person with a candle, and they have a, they have, a, and they're copying, and they're copying it by night, they're copying. All right, and sometimes they would get tired. And so, sometimes we have some manuscripts where they wrote the same line twice. Okay, so we're not we're not concerned about what that line said. We know what the line said. We just know, we know we wrote it twice in that one copy. You know, and uh, and so we, we, there are some some of our copies have some mistakes that we can easily identify how to happen. All right. So some guys, some some so it was by sight. Sometimes it's tired. But we have 5,300 of them to figure out what exactly it said. All right. Some, another way they made copies was is they would have a room full of let's say let's say all you guys are going to copy when I'm you, I want I want I want 30 copies of a manuscript. So I'm going to read a sentence and you're going to write it down. All right, so I read it and everybody writes. Okay, and I read it again, but you know I've got it. Okay, next sentence. And that's how they did some of the copying with a group of people. But we have errors of hearing. So you have sometimes there, we'll have one manuscript; they'll have a word that sounds like another word, but it's not the right word. And the reason we know is we got 5,200, 5,300 manuscripts, but we know that was a mistake. My point being this. Uh, let's see. Okay. Let's say, let's say you received a uh, telegraph. So you do know what a telegraph is. All right. Said you won five thousand dollars. Okay. But you notice when you got the telegraph, it's misspelled dollars. But just make sure you got to send you another one. You won $500. And then you got another one. You won $5,000. And let's say you had $5,300. Do you think you could figure out what it says? <laughs> if you had $5,300? Yeah. See, so what I'm saying is, yeah, we have... There are some manuscripts that have some mistakes on the copies. And automatically people go, well, if we're on the original then how can we know for sure what it says? Because we have 5,300 copies. And so we can know what it says. So you can have great confidence in reading your Bible. That is, you have the accurate, passed down, you know, inspired Word of God. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay, the reliability of the New Testament authors. All right. <clears throat> So, principle to follow. One must listen to the claims of the document under consideration or analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself by contradictions or known factual inerrances. That's from JW Montgomery, History of Christianity. In other words, you know, when we read it and when we're reading these documents, you know, is there anything about you know, these authors or what they're writing that should cause us, to cause us to doubt it. I mean, first of all, they're using break this down, A, they're using primary source material. You know, Luke talks about, in the beginning of the book of Luke and also the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts is kind of like Luke volume 2. It's, you know, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the church. But, so Luke writes the gospel of Luke and he writes the book of Acts. The introductions are real similar. He talks about the, the painstaking way he went through making sure everything he wrote was accurate. All of the witnesses he talked to, he's interviewing people, everything to put everything together. Okay, and so, so really, we've got the use of primary source material, like talking to the people that were there. You know, if Luke wasn't there, he talked to someone who was there. I mean, one of the people he probably interviewed because he, he was in the same place was was Mary, the mother of <laughs> Jesus. Most scholars have no doubt that Luke energy here in great detail. at uh, what he wrote. Okay, also you have the actual apostles who were there to saw it all. Well, remember, Jesus said, he, Jesus actually said to the apostles that he's going to when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring everything to their remembrance. And so, but the apostles were reliable. Look at here, the authors were honest. They taught and lived honestly Honesty. They died for their beliefs. Now think about that. If you uh, you would, if you were making this whole thing up, you wouldn't die for it, would you? Of course not. And so they're dying for the fact that this is true, What they're writing is true. They died for it. The authors were accurate. The number of witnesses were great. For example, you have 500 who saw the resurrected of Christ according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6, at one time. The time and the witness was long. They were with Jesus for three, like three and a half years. The nature of the witnesses firsthand, they're eyewitnesses. And by the way, in the court of law today, you get two eyewitnesses, I mean, the guy's going down, right? I mean, two eyewitnesses, clam dunk. And so we've got all these eyewitnesses that are giving us reliable reports. And then there's confirmation of history and archaeology. Okay? The confirmation, of course, all the quotations that are taken from Taken from uh, what they wrote into all of these early early writings of other extra biblical writers. Conclusion: Jesus was crucified in Pontius Pilate at Passover time. He was believed by his disciples have risen from the dead. Jewish leaders charged Christ with sorcery and believed he was born of adultery. That if Jesus the that Christ. By the way, these are some things. Why would they? Some of the things that they included writing in there. Why would they include it? If they were making some of this stuff up anyway, right? The, the, the Judean sect of Christianity could not be contained; but spread from Jerusalem to Rome. Nero and other Roman rulers bitterly persecuted and martyred early Christians. This is all this is all known historically outside of the scriptures as well. These early Christians denied polytheism, lived dedicated lives according to Christ's teachings, and worshipped Him only. And so, you just uh, so everything everything that, uh, that was written in the New Testament is also. Is consistent with everything else we know about history at that time in that region. In archaeology, this is a great quote here. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. The Bible historically is confirmed by the almost incredible accurate historical memory of the Bible, particularly to when it is fortified by archaeological fact. It's funny how. They'll you know, come up with uh, uh, this has happened many times. Uh, I know during my Christian life, is, I remember being back in seminary days, someone some to come up with the fact that some historian, some non Christian historians, that that city never existed. So the Bible is wrong. The city never existed. But sure enough, five years later, some archaeologist finds the city exactly where the Bible says it is. I mean, it's like every turn of the shovel just confirms another truth of the Bible. So again, we're not concerned. I'm not concerned about any archaeological finding coming up and showing the bottom of country. Every one of them continues to show it, show it to be true. And uh, now it doesn't mean that that uh, something that's been passed down. For example, we're, like, the question of, of where is Mount Sinai, really? And uh, if you've got the fact that Constantine's wife had a dream, you know, in the... In the, you know the fourth century, and, showed, and God showed her where where Mount Sinai was, and then and so the whole church bought into it. it's where he she, she said it was. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what Constantine's wife said. So you have a lot of history the church has that's not from the Bible. But then when you go back and test it, you know the Bible proves to be true. Where it says Mount Sinai is. In fact, I tell you, here's some interesting. Uh, I did this, I I was taking all the places in the the Old Testament where it talks about Vermont Sinai is. And and, and, and it's not where Constantine's wife said it was. But if you see where the Bible says it is, and then you Google Earth, I did this, just Google Earth, and go there with Google Earth, and the top of that mountain is scorched black. God came down fires on top of the mountain. Remember? Moses goes up there, fires on the mountain. Well, go to Google Earth, guys, and that mountain is scorched black today. I mean, I didn't go to any other website. I just went to Google Earth on my own. And I said, well, here it is. I went, zoomed down on it, and I said, my goodness, it's black. It's just scorched black. And so again, some might say, well, see, uh, you know, the Bible was not right about where Mount Sinai is. No, the Bible's right. Thomas wife was wrong. So there's a lot of things in Church history that you got to go back and say, wait a second. For example, where did where did the Israelites cross the Red Sea? Now, where a lot of a lot of uh, in history have said where cross isn't really they but if you really track it down exactly where they traveled, if you if you get to if you get where Mount Sinai really is and where they had to cross, well, somebody did that, and you can, you can go online and do this thing. Go online. And they went underwater where they really crossed. Guess what's there? Chariots. Something chariots. Remember when Pharaoh's army came after him? And the sea came after get? They're there. I mean you can go and see the picture. I mean there's chariot wheels. You know, there's still pieces of the chariot. There's like the, you know, the the emblems on there and everything. It's amazing. So every, so archaeology continues to confirm the Bible time and time again. And so it's a, so uh, we just, all I'm trying to say at this point, though, is that the New Testament is reliable, historical, reliable. We're not saying it's the word of God at this point. We're just saying it's historical and reliable. And, it's, and, it's, and, it, and it, if you compare it to all these other ancient documents, it's it's much more historically reliable, verifiable, than all any other ancient document. Okay? Okay. Yep. Uh, Yeah, because there's always been all kinds of other writings and other teachings outside of the apostolic oversight. And so, yeah, it was constantly being watched. Okay, so we got a historically reliable document, all right? That's all we're getting to this point. Now now we want to take this next step and talk about Jesus being God come in the flesh, okay? So let's... uh, See the claims made. Again, I've got a lot, a lot of stuff here, but I want you just want you to have more enough more to you can go back on reflect on too and study in your own. <laughs> What we want to show at this point. You want to show that in that historically reliable document, Jesus makes a claim that he is God come in the flesh. And then he actually proves that by, you know, you know three things we'll see at the end of this. But uh, so let's just see what he claims first of all. Now I remember in John chapter 8 that there is quite a discussion going on between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Pharisees are basically asking Jesus this question, who are you? But they're asking him, they're asking the question like this, kind of like, who do you think you are? That's kind of how the question is being asked, Jesus, who do you think you are? And and they were they were claiming Abraham. You know, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're the truth, they're, they have the truth, and they're, they're the descendants of Abraham. And who do you think you are? Okay, so that's the whole context. And then Jesus basically says, Before Abraham was, I am. By the way, in some translations, uh, where Jesus says, I am, in different places, referring to himself, sometimes they'll. He'll say, I well, am He. I am He. And you'll notice that He's italicized because it's not in the text. And he, didn't say, I am he. he said, "I am." Is what He's doing. is Remember when Moses went to the burning bush, and Moses at the burning bush, and God's talking to him about you know, delivering the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, and Moses is like, well, "Who? You know, what is your name? Who? They ask me who you, what your name is. I need to be able to answer that question." And God says, "I am. That I am." Yahweh is the name. Yahweh. I am that I am. Well, Jesus actually says when he says, before Abraham was, he says, I am. He says that they knew he was making a claim of the deity. Because what the next verse says? They picked up stones. Because they were ready to stone him to death for blasphemy. Because they knew he was making that claim. Because I've heard different cult people. I've I've talked to a lot of cult leaders over the years, especially on the college campuses. And uh, they'll say, well, Jesus never claimed it himself. Jesus made an ultimate claim. He takes the very name of God out of himself. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he will use that I am statement many times. Even when he says, I am the way, truth, and the life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, all of those I am statements, he's using them powerfully to say that he is God in the flesh. All right? Okay, so Jesus claimed to be Yahweh. Also, he claimed to be equal with God. Let's go. Ahead. I don't know if you guys brought your Bibles with you, but I will, we'll look at some of these verses and read these. I just, you know, it's important for us to see the claims that he's making. All right? Okay, so... Uh, he claims to be equal to God. In Mark chapter 2, if you remember, this is where he heals a paralytic. In Mark 2, verse 5, Jesus uh, said, seeing their faith, their faith being his four friends probably who lowered him down, uh, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. And then notice when we get to uh, up to verse 7, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So this is what. They're saying, he can't. how can he say forgive sin unless he's only God can do that? Okay, and then jump up to uh, verse 10. But in order, Jesus says, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I said you, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. So the whole idea being here that he is doing things that only God has the right to do and the power to do he's doing as God come in the flesh okay also look at uh, John chapter 5 in fact let's just pick it up verse 22 it says not even the father judges anyone but he's given all judgment to the son. Verse twenty three, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. I mean this would be blasphemous to say if he wasn't God come in the flesh. If he wasn't the Son of God, this would be blasphemous to say. That that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay? And then go up to verse uh, jump to verse twenty five. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself and He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. By the way, the uh, when Jesus uses a... He yeah, title Son of Man. That was his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. And do you know where you're getting that from? Do y'all know where he gets that from? In Daniel, why don't you look at Daniel chapter 7 for a moment? In Daniel 7, you got this scene. In verse 9, he says. He kept looking until thrones were set up, and the ancient days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was blazing blade with flames. His wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were tending him. Married by marriage were standing before him. Then jump up to verse 13. He kept looking in the night vision. behold, with the clouds of heaven one like a Son of Man was coming. He came up to the ancient days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, this is the reference of Son of Man. When Jesus preferred himself, that was the title he preferred best. You know, he liked the best. And this is obviously a title that is consistent with uh, being the Son of God, the Messiah. Okay, so he claims to be Messiah. We'll go to the next one. So he claims to be equal with God. He claims to be a Messiah God. Uh, we see that reference. Uh, in fact, let's just look at... Uh, let's one Turn to uh, Matthew 22. Let's look at that one. Matthew
2: 22. I like, I like that he says, Gary, and what you said earlier about uh, that in Mark, he says that he, the Son of Man, has authority on earth. And that ties into Daniel because his dominion on earth, his creation that he created. I just want to note that in there.
0: Yeah. All right, so Matthew 22 and uh, verse 43. Let me back up a little bit. Okay, let's back out of 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, and he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet if David then calls him Lord how is he his son so Jesus is trying to get them to recognize the Messiah of course you know he's come he's come in human flesh but Messiah is 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 the Lord right here so he claims to be the Messiah God in these other passages as well uh, Jesus accepts worship. Only God is allowed to be worshipped, clearly in the Old Testament, time and time again. Remember, angels, anytime angels would worship, what do they say? What did an angel say real quick? Yeah, worship me. They only worship God. Angels are always corrected because namely, angels show up right here. We'd all be so amazed. It would be hard for us to refrain from worshiping that angel ourselves. Because they're so glorious. But the angel said, Don't worship. Only worship God. Well, Jesus accepts worship. Jesus was worship acceptable. Okay, the authority of Jesus's commands. You know, He gives the commands, but I say unto you, you know, you have you've heard it said. He's talking about all through the sermon on the mount, by the way. Jesus would do this. He would say, uh, "If you've heard it said," and what is He doing? He's talking about the Pharisees were were mis, misapplying, misteaching the Old Testament. Then He said, "But I say unto you." So now He's speaking authoritative and clarify all through. All right, the authority of his command. All right. Uh, now some would argue, yeah, but why does he say some of these things that seem like he's saying he's not deity? Like, my father is greater than I. And uh, so, how, so a lot of cults are quick to point that verse out. Well, see, so he's not, he's not God come to flesh. He says, father's greater than him. So how would you answer that? There you go. He's talking about. He's not talking. He's talking about personness. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's order in the Trinity. There's order. He's not talking about essence, being. Okay. Also, Mark thirteen. Jesus was ignorant at the time of the second coming. So, if He's God from the flesh, how could He? How could He do that? How could He not know? Remember, in 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 uh, Philippians chapter two, it says that He. That he, that he actually that he emptied himself. And he did not hold on equality with God a thing to be grasped or, or held on to. He, he truly empties himself when he becomes a man. And he empties himself of divine prerogatives. He could have still chosen them, but he chooses to function as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes to the earth. Okay, and one of the cho- choices he made it was to, to not know that. And how that works is beyond our understanding, but he, he made a choice. All right, when Jesus said that, uh, when, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, uh, you know, how, how do I pay eternal life? good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And Jesus wouldn't say he wasn't God. He just said no one's good but God. He was trying to get the rich young ruler to understand who he's talking to. I'm not just a good teacher. He said, good, who are you talking to? He's talking to the Messiah. Okay. <clears throat> And then why does Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Mark 15? And I want you to think about that moment. I mean, here is the word of God Himself, down on the cross for our sins, bearing all of the guilt and shame of all humanity, absorbing the judgment at that very moment. And he reaches into the Old Testament and pulls out the, the one verse that really speaks to that moment and how he's feeling as the Father has to turn his back on the Son as the Son bears, bears all of our evil and shame pays our
1: family, And so that verse
0: doesn't give us any crime at all. What's the Old Testament reference? The Old Testament reference is Psalm 22. Let me see, what verse is it? I think verse 1, isn't it? Uh, Psalm 22, verse 1. Okay, anyway, so let's let's go back to Romans uh, Roman two, two. The claims so Jesus he he did claim to be I am he he made he claimed to be equal with God, he claimed to be Messiah who is God come in the flesh, he accepts worship, he speaks authoritatively. And then number two, the claims of Jesus' disciples that he was God. So Jesus is given the names of deity, the first and the last. He is the shepherd. He's the Lord of glory. He is the true light, the rock, the stone, the builders rejected. He's the bridegroom, the savior, the judge, forgiver of sins, and the redeemer. Also, Jesus was considered to be Messiah God by the disciples. Messiah is Lord in Psalm one ten. So is Jesus. Next chapter two. This reference Messiah God. In Isaiah nine six. Also, this is referred to Jesus in Matthew one twenty three. He's Messiah. Is pierced. Zechariah. Remember, he's pierced through. For remember, when Jesus returns, you will see the one they pierced. Jewish people. Jesus Christ died, and all about him. In fact, I think I want you guys, we'll come back to we'll go to this left age appendix. I want to show you something. Go to the appendix. And I want you, I want to look at a couple of these. Let's start at the very bottom one, Isaiah 45, 23. Turn to Isaiah 45, 23. When I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, one of the cult groups that say Jesus, you know, the Bible doesn't teach that He is God. Here, these are the passages I go to, like particularly in Jehovah's Witnesses. Isaiah 45, 23 says this. It says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow every tongue will swear allegiance and they will say of me only in the Lord our righteousness is strength so I go to verse 23 every knee will bow and every tongue will, will swear allegiance and I'll ask the Jehovah witnesses who are they talking about and they'll say Jehovah i said, say you're right it is Then I go to Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians 2. Verse 10. See, this isn't part of their training, so that's why I like to do it this way. Philippians 2 10. And at the name of Jesus every knee bow. Those who are in heaven on earth under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The of God, the Father. So I'd say, yeah. Now, Isaiah passage says that every knee is going to bow and every time we confess that Yahweh, they say Jehovah. His name is Yahweh. Yahweh is, is God. Now since they say Jehovah is wrong, right? They say Jehovah says so say saying Jehovah. And here Jesus it says they bow their knee to Jesus and confess him as Lord. So I means Jesus is Jehovah. They you don't know, like it. Usually the trainer at that time or the trainee. I used to talk to the trainee. At that time the trainer's going, Well we gotta go. Said, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. i just getting warmed up. <laughs> uh, so let's look at another one. Uh, let's see which one I want to look at. I don't have that one there. Let's go to Isaiah forty one. Do that one. Isaiah 41. You can do any of these, but they're all good. I'm just going to pick a few of them. Isaiah 41. Just reading this another day. 41, verse 4. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord. Right there. And that is, your, your translation says, Lord should be all cast. Anytime it's all capital letters, it's Yahweh. Okay. And I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. And also look at the other Isaiah passage there, forty-four, verse Isaiah forty-four, verse six. Thus says the Lord, here again it's all caps, Yahweh, the King of Israel, to His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I, and the first I, and the last. There's no God beside me. Okay, so then we get to the book of Revelation. And verse 117. Who's it referring to? It says, And when he saw him, I'm talking about Jesus, he saw the glorified Christ. and I saw him, he fell at his feet as a dead man. He laid his right hand upon me, saying, you have faith. I am the first, and the last, and the living one. And so again, what we see here, the reason I've got, I've got this appendix for you to use is is I, when I talk to Jehovah Witnesses, particularly, I like to go to the Old Testament first. I use their Bible too. Because their Bible does pervert, like John one says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And they say the Word was a God. And they violate all Greek grammar to do this. You know, in fact, we had some of our professors actually try to get them to force forth whoever came up with their translation and defend it, because it violates they violate Greek grammar purposely to say he was a god, not he's, he's a god. And uh, it's called Caldwell's Rule in Greek grammar anyway. So, so since they have that, since I know they've already reverted to some of the translation, I go to the parts of the translation, they haven't known enough to pervert it. <laughs> so I, I, I go to the Old Testament and say, okay, is that talking about I say Jehovah. That's what it was called. So that's Jehovah? I say, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Now I go to the New Testament and I, and I say, now who's it talking about there? Jesus. Oh, so Jesus said Jehovah? No, 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 no. Okay, well, how about this one? Who's it talking about? Jehovah? Oh, okay. Over here, we're talking about Jesus. Oh! So Jesus says Jehovah? No, 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 no. I started to with me. And uh, I was talking to one of the leaders, one of the area leaders, and I said, I said, I, said I, I offered, I said, I'll come to the Kingdom Hall, and us, you and I have a debate in your own hall about the uni And he said, we don't want to do that. And I said, if you guys, uh, and then I chatted, and I, you know, Paul told Timothy, charge certain men to stop teaching strange doctrines. So before I'm done, and this is kind of rabbitsome. I mean, I'm nice and gentle the whole time. The rest of the day, I go, one more thing. I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop, he's a strange guy. And I'm like, you don't have to be like that. You know? <laughs> 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 and I'm like, I guess I did. And then I look at the trainees, and the trainees the ones that's kind of nervous. I, hey, I want you to know you're a part of the course, and you need to get out of this. And then I'm like, let's well, go, I don't know. <laughs> okay, back to your, your hand out there. Okay, so where we were before was uh, Jesus considered uh, to be Messiah God by the disciples. And here we just, in so many passages, it says Messiah is Lord in Psalm 110, so is Jesus Christ too. That's kind of what we just did. Messiah is, Messiah is God in Isaiah 9, 6. Remember? we should be called Mighty God, right? Isaiah 96, so is Jesus. Messiah is Jehovah's pierced. So is Jesus crucified. And to him, we all bow, so we all bow to Jesus. All right. Let me explain real quick, because I've made a couple of references to you, really, why, how the name Jehovah came about. Do you want to know? Okay, the name, first of all, and uh, understand Yahweh is uh, if you have if you have a Hebrew if you have a Hebrew Old Testament, what you'll have is first of is, all is, well, first of all understand the Hebrew was originally written. Everything is written. You know, we got first of all it all goes it all goes right to the left. I left to right. So Yahweh, and you got, is just four consonants. All right? And so, when the, when the in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew text has no vowels. And it has all only consonants. Because everything was given orally and they all knew what the words, they all knew what the words sounded like. Okay, so 600 years after the time of Christ. Okay? 600 years after the time of Christ. They came in and put in the vowel points. All right? The vowel, and so it came in and put certain vowel points in so that people would know how to pronounce the words. Now, every time, every time they came to the name Yahweh, they wouldn't say Yahweh because it was the unspeakable man. They didn't want to say, they didn't want to run the risk of saying God's name in vain, so they would not say Yahweh. What would they say? Would say Adonai. So every time they came to the word Yahweh, even though it said Yahweh, they wouldn't read it. They wouldn't read it, they'd say Adonai. Even today, you go to conservative synagogue today. Well, they will not say the name Yahweh. They will say Adonai. Okay. So when they put the vowel points in in 600 A.D., they wanted to make sure that people didn't say Yahweh. So they put the vowel points for Adonai on the consonants. Of the word Yahweh, okay. and that's how you got Yehovah. Okay, that's why I say it, some of those names, Yahweh. But uh, so they so they would say they would, that's what they say just to make sure you didn't say you didn't say Yahweh. you put the vow points for Adonai on the consonants of Yahweh. And, and even today, that's what you have. My Hebrew, I have a Hebrew Old Testament. And all the vowel points, every time Yahweh comes, the word Yahweh comes up, they got the vowel marks for Adonai on that Yahweh. Just so make sure you do not say Yahweh. Say Adonai. And then they start coming up with Jehovah. And that's how Jehovah came about. Anyways, that's a side point. Let's go back to you. <laughs> come back to your point. And back to your hand. Okay. The disciples attributed to Jesus' powers possessed only by God to raise the dead creator. By the way, John chapter 1 is just, John chapter 1, if I could just teach the two passages of the Bible, I'll teach John 1 and Colossians 1 about the deity of Christ. I mean, just think about John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld Him glory. I mean, there it is. I mean, He was God, and He's with God, and He was God, and He became false. So there's a mystery, even then, there's, there's a Trinitarian mystery, even there, right? He's, with, he's God, and He's with God. How does that work? That's the, that's the Trinity. All right? Let me see, so give you guys a quick lesson on the Trinity. You yeah, do want one? Okay, okay you got... All right, you got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You got one God, one who, and three whats. I'm sorry, one what, three who's. I'll do good. One what, and three who's. Who the Son, who the Father, and who the Holy Spirit. All right. So what we're saying when we talk about the Trinity, we're, we're not—it's not a contradiction to say God is one and three. It's only a contradiction if it's—we said He's one person and three persons. That's a contradiction. We said He's one God and three gods. That's a contradiction. We say He's one God, three persons. That's two different categories. It's not a contradiction. It is a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. All right. Now, so God is one what, three who's. But the Son of God becomes a man. The Son of God is one who and two what's. So God is one what, one God, three who's. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son becomes, takes on human flesh and he's one who, but he's two what? He's God, Son, he's also become a man. And really, that's about the best we can do in Trinity with our finite minds. You Where
1: know? um, they show, like, that passage, well, it's one revelation, that one.
0: That they're two persons, but they're just. What we're saying when we talking about God being one, we're talking about there's one nature of God, The essence. one essence, one stuff. stuff. But there's three persons. And so,
1: they're actually three individuals. But we never see the three whole personalities. Spirit. Three personalities, but we never see the Holy Spirit like we see in
2: the Bible. They show the Holy
0: spirits Spirit is portrayed differently. Like you get seven spirits right there in Revelation 4 and 5 and the fullness of uh, his person too but we know the spirit's a person because in Acts chapter 5 remember Peter says that tells Ananias that you lied why did you let the Satan put in your heart the lie to the Holy Spirit and, and calls it, and uses personal pronouns referring to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's never been it so he. okay uh don't know if I should get off and all that. Anyways, back to this. Already. Uh, hey, yeah. Whenever do you come across a lot of people questioning you on the Trinity when you're trying to share it, like
3: sometimes. Type?
0: Yeah. Well, sometimes i will ask about the Trinity. What? The story I like to tell is uh, Augustine in the, in, in the early 400s, I think, it was when he was he was over the Trinity. And he's walking the beach, and he's walking the beach, and he's trying to think about how about how are you? Three and one. He's walking the beach and he's asking us question. As he's doing that, there's a little boy playing on the beach. A little boy had a bucket and the boy would was digging a hole in the sand and he'd run down to the water and fill the water up and with the bucket with water and he'd pour the water into the hole he was making. And he'd run back down to the water put some more water in the bucket and he'd pour the water uh, out of the bucket into the hole in the sand. And he kept doing that and Augustus walked in and said, lad, what are you doing? And the boy said, I'm trying to put that ocean in this hole and Augustine thought, that's what I'm trying to do. i to put this ocean of God into this little hole. But he basically realized, the way it's saying. there are some things about an infinite God that I can't totally comprehend with a finite one. And so so there's some things that we're told about God that are true, but we can't necessarily totally comprehend it. The Trinity is one of those things. And so it's a... But, but we do know that Jesus is clearly making a claim of, of being Messiah, of being the great Yahweh I Am. He's making that claim and he's, he's fortifying it what he does. Okay, also, the disciples associate Jesus' name with God on an equal basis. Citation, baptism formula, possibly benediction, the work of salvation. Jesus' disciples made direct declarations of his deity, so here's some good verses, too, that you can look for. Just uh, This is a good handout to have, by the way, too, he alerts these things, so if you ever do talk to cult people. Alright, Jesus' disciples called him the creator of the universe. G, according to Jesus disciples, he was obeyed and worshipped by angels. Also, H, some alleged counterclaims against the disciples' claims. Like some some cultures it says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. You know, firstborn in and, the and, and class of 115, does that mean that God made him? Of course not. The reference to firstborn is that he's the heir of it all. Firstborn is the heir of everything and, you know, that the Father has. And so he's, he's, he's firstborn in that sense, not in fact that he ever, ever had a creation. Everyone's created. He's been created. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right, let's go down here to this. Roman number three. This is the main thing I want us to end up with this before we take another break. That is, the substantiation of Christ's claims to be God are threefold. First of all, A, Jesus uniquely fulfills prophecy is, is, and that's evidence of He is who He says He is. All right? We'll look at that in a minute. B, Jesus' sinless, miraculous life is, miraculous life is evidence of His deity. And then C, Jesus' resurrection is evidence of his deity. Now, be honest with you. I want you to have all this, but I just focus. When I'm talking somebody, I just focus on the resurrection. The reason I do is because uh, we've got over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And uh, all I'm trying to tell people is it just shows that he is. Who he says he is. He said, you know, that his God come in the flesh, and then he rises from the dead. Fruit, and then he is who he says he is. Uh, and people are able to get that pretty simple. But uh, this I want you to know this really is There really is three things. One is that he fulfills prophecy. A lot of these things, even outside of his control in a sense, I mean, that he was born of a virgin, I mean, how much control did he have over that? Right? But yet he fulfills that. And I think this, uh, by the way, this is Daniel 9 passage. Actually, you know, he was born 483 years after 444 B.C., this is one of the number one things that the uh, Messianic believers in Jerusalem and in Israel are using evangelistically with, with, with other Jews. Where yeah, are you? Okay, look down on uh, Romans 3 and number 3. a number 3. That there's a prophecy that he would be born four and eight years after this, uh, the wall is built. Nehemiah built the wall, remember 444 B.C. We can get that date. Well, so Jesus is born exactly at that time. And, uh, and here's the thing that uh, he's cut in the side. You know, the thing about this passage is you, is they take this one passage, Daniel 9, 27 through 29, and they give it to conservative Jewish believers in Israel. And they basically say, do the math on this passage and who do you have being born at that time who makes the claim to be Messiah there's only one, his name is Jesus imagine. and there's been a lot of them a lot of them have just backed up and reevaluated. Well, maybe, maybe we got this wrong you gotta understand a lot of the reason that Jews reject Christ today is because of what Christians did to Jews in history. I mean it's horrible what, what, what Christians did in killing and persecuting the Jewish people uh, and it's so, so automatically, there was a, there's a sense that we don't, we don't want any of that. And, uh, and so, uh, but this passage is causing a lot of them to realize, wait, maybe he is the second. Um, I think I only see Daniel nine going to verse twenty-seven.
1: Could
3: be a different well, That should be
0: twenty-four to twenty-seven. I'm, I got that wrong. It's a typo. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know. I'm glad you, I'm glad you point that out. 24 yeah 24 through 27 is the passage but particularly uh, when we get to verse 26 you know when it talks about after the 62 weeks and the 7 weeks these are weeks of years, Messiah must all be cut off and you, and you can actually time that up to the crucifixion of Christ okay actually you know, i got to keep moving guys because I'm trying to work so much in the show so I'm giving you all these handouts. Uh, so he fulfills prophecy and proves that he is this one who was prophesied to come. And actually, this, all these prophecies really get their power from the mother prophecy, Genesis 3.15, where God promises Adam and Eve, He will send a deliverer, who's going to basically win back two things they lost in their sin, and that is they're going to get forgiveness of sin, the relationship with God, and then once again, God is going to rule the earth. through a man. God, man, Jesus. Okay. We'll take a look at those. And the other one, of course, is lives a sinless, miraculous life. That's evidence of the deity. His life is sinless. And he lives his miraculous life with all kinds of miracles that really point to who he is. And then the resurrection, I think, is the reason I like to focus on the resurrection is because... Uh, If we don't have a resurrection, we don't have Christianity at all. I mean, that's everything. So I don't mind putting all our eggs in one basket. Okay, so uh, the Old Testament prophets predicted his resurrection. Jesus actually did die on a cross, was buried in Joseph's tomb. And there's all kinds of proofs of him actually dying. He bodily rose from the grave. And, of course, the witnesses are key there. You guys ever read the book by Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone? You all read that. Uh, Frank Morrison was a—he he set out to disprove Christianity. Very bright guy. I think he was an attorney. He set out to disprove Christianity, and in the process of trying to disprove it, he gets converted. And so he so he wrote this book, Who Moved the Stone, to basically prove, disprove all the arguments against Christ rising from the dead. Because he was so glad he could convert it. And there's a guy named Lee Strobel yeah. today who wrote a book called uh, Case for Christ. Can guy you guys read really that? He awesome. also. Yeah, same, he had the same type of situation. Lee, Lee came to start off to disprove of Christianity. He's a journalist and attorney too, I think. Both. He wrote Case for Resurrection and Case for Christ, where he had the same experience. You start going through to and find out the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus rose from the dead.
1: So, what was the name?
0: Uh, Case for Christ is one book and Case for the Resurrection is book too. There's multiple books. there's also the literature that's right what's the name of the Case for Christ,
1: Christ,
0: Christ okay so what we're saying basically that I want to follow the line of thinking here guys that is this okay we start off with theism there is a there is a God who is a theistic God who is independent from his creation And and just like a a watch design requires a watchmaker. the Designers, the universe requires a designer. So you have a God, okay? And with this theistic God, miracles are possible. And we have a reliable book. The New Testament is reliable historically, and let historically and archaeologically, it's reliable, okay? And in this book, Jesus claims to be God. And he actually affirms and validates his claims by doing three things. He fulfills prophecy. He lives a sinless, miraculous life, and he rises from the dead. So that means he is who he says he is, God from the flesh. And so whatever he says has to be right. Well, he says the Bible is the word of God. And we'll get to that next. Alright, so now we're going to talk about... Remember the flow again. In fact, look at this handout that's coming around right now. Because I kind of go review the flow with it. Alright, it's coming around. Make sure you get one of those. Remember, it starts off, God exists. And what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 1 is basically what we call general revelation. From creation, we know there must be a creator. Alright, if we have a theistic world now when God exists and miracles are possible. Does God exist? Alright, miracles confirm Christ to be God. Alright, the New Testament documents are stored reliable. New Testament manuscripts are reliable copies. New Testament writers are reliable witnesses. The New Testament says Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore, Jesus did claim to be God. Miracles confirm Jesus is claimed to be God. Therefore, Jesus is God. Whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible is the word of God. Okay, now this handout here you just got has got a lot of stuff to it. And uh, I think you guys can let you look at that because I go into uh, information about uh, inspiration. Really what, what we mean by the inspiration of the scriptures. And on the next page, too, there's a the extent of the inspiration, and then I talk about inerrancy. A lot of you believe the Bible is true and without error, and explain that as well. Okay? But now, uh, I want you to have that handout, but I want you to look at the handout. Is it okay to page that one page? I have it in my hand this year. There we go. Okay, so what Jesus taught about the Bible, I'll summarize that one page. Look at that one page now. Jesus taught the Old Testament. I just want to look at one passage there. Let's look at Matthew 5, 17, and 18 passage. What Jesus taught about the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17, and 18. Okay, Matthew 5, 17, it says, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill... Verse 18, and Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, or not a jot or tittle, so pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying that the Old Testament law is it's unbreakable, it's unstoppable, it's authoritative, down to the jot and tittle. That's King James' version. And uh, some of you have shown what a jot and tittle looks like. you want to see a jot and tittle real quick? Okay, turn to Psalm 119, and I'll show you what a jot and tittle looks like. Psalm 119, in Psalm 119, each paragraph begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order, okay? All right, and so each each paragraph begins with a Hebrew alphabet letter. You know, right above verse 57, if you have a translation, you should see, the letter Heth. See the letter Heth? You see it? 157? Anybody got one that you see one? If not, I'll write one here. Okay, the letter... I just think it's fun to give what a note of John Tiblett because if you can read it for years, and have no idea what it is. And... Okay, so you got a, you have the Heth, Okay, you see where? I want you to notice the letters. See how, how it comes all the way? The head comes all the way right there? All right, now look. That's right. We're above verse 57. It is, if you have a good translation, it'll be in a good part of the Hebrew text. They have these, each paragraph, they have a Hebrew letter, starting turning it, the paragraph. Above, above verse 57 is a head. Above verse 33 is a head. You all see the difference between those two letters? Two different Hebrew letters. Y'all see the
1: difference? Yeah.
0: Well, right here, this 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 right this letter doesn't come all the way and connect. Here it goes all the way across. This right here is called a tittle. Okay? And then right above verse 73, you have a yod, which is kind of like a comma up in the air. So Jesus says, you know, that that the Word of God is down to the... It doesn't say down to every statement is the Word of God. It doesn't say down to every word. He doesn't say down to every letter. He says down to the smallest part of the letter has to be fulfilled. Why? Because it's authoritative. It's the Word of God. So that's so Jesus is making a, a big case for the Old Testament being unbreakable, unstoppable, authoritative. Therefore, let's be the Word of God. I've given you some other... Some other uh, things that Jesus said about the Old Testament. So Jesus actually says in the Old Testament it's the Word of God. Jesus is God from the flesh. So what he says is it has to be true. The Old Testament is the Word of God. But then he promises the writing of the New Testament. Alright? In John 14, 26 and John 16, 13. Let me just tell you what they say. In John 14 26 Jesus says that he's going to ascend and he's going to send the Holy Spirit on the apostles. He said, and the Holy Spirit is going to bring everything to your remembrance, he said. That's John 14, 26. And John 16, starting verse 13, he says, and, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, and the Holy Spirit is going to lead you in all truth and disclose even more revelation from me to you. That's what he said in these passages. So Jesus is promising the writing in the New Testament. So Jesus stands in between <laughs> the Testaments. He says in the Old Testament, is the word of God down to the job of the dead. And he promises the writing of the, of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, and the God of the apostles and all truth, Bring everything to their remembrance, and even disclose more revelation to them. All right? So Jesus says of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is the word of God. He says the Old Testament is the word of God. He promises the New Testament will be the word of God. Therefore, since Jesus says it's the word of God, it's the word of God. Okay, so you guys see the whole line of thinking here? So we start off God exists, all right, and He's and, and so miracles are possible. All right, we have this reliable document, the New Testament, historically reliable document that actually tells about Jesus making this claim to God, coming to the flesh and the Messiah. Jesus not only makes a claim, he actually, you know, proves he is who he says he is by doing three things. What are they? Number one, fulfill prophecy. Number two, he lives a sinless and righteous life. Number three, he rises from the dead. For he is, he says, he is God coming to flesh. As God, he cannot lie. So whatever he says about the Bible must be true. What does he say? He says the Old Testament, down to the God of Tittle, is the authoritative word of God. In the New Testament, promises will be true, the word of God, revelation from him to the apostles. So why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Jesus says so. Jesus says so. All right? Now, me. go ahead.
1: But Jesus is also the Word of God.
0: Jesus, He's the Word become flesh. So, so He Himself is, the is word, there.
1: So this is the Word become flesh.
0: No, this is the written Word of God. This is this is this is Revelation from God. He is the Word of God personified. So he is God's Revelation, ultimate Revelation. Okay, so that means that what if Jesus says this is the truth, then that makes Christianity unique. Jesus doesn't say any other religion is the truth. He says he says this is God's true revelation, is this is what we believe. So that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And that's what Christian apologetics says. We are defending the Christian faith. And that's the line of process of thinking. And you guys, so y'all want to track that process? It's not hard, is it? Everyone got it? Make sense? But I'm going to go to, I'm going to deal with a couple of questions with an hour we got left. Like, what about those you never heard? And if God went evil? So those are two big questions. If you share the gospel with some people, you're going to get those two questions. And you need good answers for them. But I, I want you just to see the, the simple flow, though, okay? Any questions about the flow? Making sense? Nah? Anybody? I confuse anybody? Okay, we're all good. Okay, now I want to talk about if God why evil because this is huge, and I, and I hear this question all the time, and, uh, and it's a good question, and it needs to, we need to have a good answer because a lot of people who even started off, you know, believing believing in you know, Christianity have some kind of bad thing happened in their life and so they stopped believing in God. Now I used to believe, I used to believe that when this happened. What they're saying is, they didn't have a good answer for the question of God why either, If God why suffering. If God why injustice. If God why things like this or this, we can all be, get you know, answers to that. You just, you know, finish that sentence, right? Okay. So I want you guys to be able to understand that uh, first of all, we are not We are not at least a bit intimidated by that question. We have, there's a good answer to the question. All right? And as Christians, we all have good answers. All right, so here. First of all, let's just understand what he has, if God, why evil. First of all, we're going to break it down into sections here so we can understand. First of all, the problem of the nature of evil. So here's how the problem is stated. Here's how a lot of people mind. If God is the author author of everything and evil is something, that means God is the author of evil. What's wrong with that? Well, first of all, God is the author of everything, but evil is not a thing. It is really a lack in things, and we'll explain that in a minute. So it doesn't follow that God created evil. So if someone says, someone says to me, God is the author of everything, I say, yes. Yeah. And evil is something, I say, No. I'm not, to, I'm not going to give them these three steps because it's wrong. All right, here's the answer. God is the author of everything. Evil is not a thing. Hence, God doesn't follow. God created evil. All right, we're going to explain more of this a moment, but let me go ahead and just jump in. What did God create? God created everything perfectly good, right? And it says in Genesis chapter 1, everything was very good. When he saw him. it was not good in the animal he creates it. E Okay? And so, God did, did not create anything evil. He created free creatures. Now, why did God create free creatures? So they could choose to love him. So they could love him. See, so God made us to love us, right? But, how do you, how, you can't get a robot to love you back? So he had to give us freedom. You can't love without freedom. So God made free creatures. And free creatures sin and bring in evil into the world. All right? So God didn't make evil. God made free creatures. Free creatures chose not to love God, and they brought in, and that's called sin. And with the interest of sin became evil and all the mess of the world. All the suffering, all the injustice, all that. It goes back to a decision made in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Alright. Let's look at the next one. The problem of the origin of evil. The problem stated, God made everything perfect. Imperfection cannot come from perfection, so perfect creatures cannot be the origin of evil. Answer, God made everything perfect. One of the perfect things God made was free creatures. Free will is the cause of evil. Hence, imperfection, evil, can arise from the perfect. Not directly, but indirectly through freedom. So God does not create evil. He creates free creatures. That's that's, That's the big answer here, guys. All right, note there. God created the fact of freedom. Man performs the acts of freedom. God made evil possible. Creatures made it actual. Okay, so, again, I don't think People who think, it's, you, know, you know, couldn't God have done it in a different way? We're going to see a moment in the but I don't think God could have done it any way. First of all, if God makes robots, how are you going to have a love relationship with a robot? So God could have chosen not to make anything, he could have. But he didn't. And why didn't he? Do you ever wonder why God even decided to make us? You know, one time, I, you know, we have four grown children, but we had, I remember... Well, the kids were little one time. We went to uh, Disney World, and we camped out in the park there, and we just had a great time. Anyway, so some years later, kids aren't grown up yet, and Tracy and I found ourselves in Southern California at a conference, and, we, and it turns out that we're not very far from Disneyland, not Disney World, but Disneyland, and we had a great afternoon. I said, "Guess what the heck? Let's go!" kids aren't with this. but let's just go. I in you know, the original Disneyland Land right here. So we went for one afternoon and the whole time we kept thinking, I oh, wish the kids were here. I oh, wish the kids were here. I oh, wish the kids were here. Why? Because there's something cool going on and you want others to experience it, right? You ever been somewhere and said, I wish so-and-so was here it because it's good and you want them to experience it? Well, imagine God in perfect everything, perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he wants the others to experience all makes us so we can experience it. It makes perfect sense that he created us. You know, because he's so awesome. He should be so Okay, next one. Problem of persistence of evil. Problem stated, if God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all powerful, he could destroy evil. Evil is not destroyed, hence there's no such God. What's the problem with that? Answer. First of all, Evil cannot be destroyed without destroying freedom. At this point, yes. love is the greatest good for free creatures. Love is impossible without freedom. So to destroy freedom would be would not be the greatest good. To destroy freedom is to destroy all moral good, free will. But evil will yet be defeated. If God is all powerful, he can defeat evil. If God is all good, he will defeat evil. Evil is not yet defeated, Therefore, evil will one day be defeated. And that's true, right? The Bible teaches it. We're not done yet. God is going to come and destroy all evil. I mean, it's all getting thrown in the lake of fire. I mean, all of it's going in the lake of fire, totally, forever abolished, destroyed, and we are are going to be nothing but glory. All good. Okay. Number four, the problem of the purpose of evil. Problem stated. There is no good purpose for much suffering. An all-good being must have a good purpose for everything, hence there cannot be an all-good God. Answer. Distinction. Even if we don't know God's purpose, He may still have a good purpose for allowing for these things. We do know some good purposes for evil. To warn us of a greater evil. For example, let's say you have a heart pain. And so you go to the hospital. And they said, we're well, glad you got here just in time. And they could do something to keep you from having a heart attack and dying. Right? So there was some pain to keep you from a greater pain. All right? So, so sometimes God has purposes allowing certain things in order for them not to be worse things. All right? Also, to keep us from self-destruction. All right? So I go and I, and I put my hand on the hot stove. And I go, Ooh. That hurt, God. Why did you allow that to hurt? You know, that's so why. Well, you want to keep your hand on it, so you can burn it all the way off. No, so so actually, a little pain to keep me from again another greater pain, self destruction. Also, to help bring about greater good. Sometimes God will allow us some things to bring about a greater good. He can. All of us have had experiences. We've gone through some difficulty, and we come out the other end of it going, "I learned so much from what I went through." suffering the difficulty so I so it's a greater good now come out of this also to help defeat evil so sometimes even allowing for some of it can actually turn around and bring about defeating other evil Look, because there's no pain he's got a megaphone to get the attention of morally deaf world that's another C.S. Lewis quote by the way I always tell my kids um, growing up I tell them uh, you can learn and live or you can live and learn. Which one do you want to do? You can learn and live, or you can live and learn. And then I say, now, when you, if you decide to live and learn, understand that pain is the last teacher that walks in the room. But pain is a good teacher. Do you want, do you, do you want that, 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 that pain to be your teacher, or do you want to try to avoid some pain? And so sometimes God will use pain because that's the only thing a only deaf world will finally listen to. You know, it's kind of like, when next, the next big disaster hits America, you know, the next uh, September 11th event happens, and, and I believe there's going to be some. What's going to happen the next day is there's going to be tons of people in churches. You know, they, just like after 9 11 last time, people packed in churches. So what happened was, oh, sudden, so God got their attention. Now, did God cause that to happen? No. Did God, is that, will God use it? Yes. So a lot of things that happened on the earth, God's not causing them, but God will use it. He will use it. All right, the problem of the extent of evil. All right, the greatest good is to save all men. Evil in person, hell, would be less than the greatest good. Therefore, God cannot send anyone to hell. Answer. True, God does desire all men to be saved. Number two, God cannot force anyone to love him. Force love is a contradiction. All who go to hell choose to go there. They will it even if they don't want it. Note, it is not one person in hell which would make it evil. It's one more than is really necessary. A world with some in hell is not the best world conceivable, but it may be the best world achievable with free creatures. Okay, problem of avoidability of evil. Problem stated. God knows everything. So God knew evil would occur when he created the world. This is true. God has other non-evil possibilities. He could have not created anything. He could have not created anything free. He could have created free creatures who would not sin. He could have created free creatures who would sin, but they would always be saved in the end. Well, the answer to all those, first of all, number one, wrongly implies nothing is better than something. And you know, this whole idea that, that uh, under uh, 3A, not create anything. That wrongly implies nothing better than, than something. Under 3b, God cannot create anything free. That wrongly assumes non-free can be compared to free. I mean, I, I didn't even make that comparison. And then, uh, last one is possible is C and D would never come come about freely, and God cannot force freedom. So you can say, well, uh, let me ask you this question. Here's a good one for you to think about. Okay, if uh, if we have to have freedom to love God and when we get to heaven we're going to forever be in a love relationship with God that means we're going to be free, right? In heaven? Right? Well, that's not your question. Say again. If I'm going to be in heaven and love God forever I have to be free forever. Right? I can't love God. But we're going to love Him. So we're gonna to have to be free in heaven forever. So how is it in our freedom we won't sin in heaven? Yeah? And sin? In what changed this?
2: Transformation.
0: And when does that transformation occur? In Christ. All right. Let's look at a couple passages. I turn to First uh, Corinthians, Chapter Thirteen. First Corinthians, Chapter Thirteen. Okay, he's talking about time. it says, uh, verse 11, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, the reason as a child. and I can't manage it away, challenge things. Verse 12, For now we see in a mere dimly, or a glass darkly, but then face to I mean, face. Face to face. When we see the Lord face to face. Now I know in part. I just know partially know here and earth. But then I shall know fully this I also been fully known. So when I see, when I see the Lord, something's going to happen that I'm going to know fully. It says, I'm fully known. By the way, that means when you know, I hear people say, I, I, I'm going to ask God these white right questions. When I get to heaven, I got some questions to ask God. And I'm like, no, you don't. You're not going to ask God anything. Why? Because when you see him, you're going to know all the answers to all your white right questions immediately. Because you know as you know. That's why one of the first things I think we're gonna say when we see him is, of course. <laughs> now I understand why you going to let
1: stuff happen, of course.
0: Okay. Anyway, don't I want you to picture that time and we're gonna see him face to face. Now I'll turn to first John. First John. So did Adam know those things before he sent? Hold on, i want to get to that. That's a good question, though. Alright, first John. Chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, okay, here it is, this is the face-to-face timer, when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. Okay, so we are going to see Him and that's going to make us like him. And what does all that mean? Okay, this is what theologians have called the beatific vision. The beatific vision is when you see him, you know as you're known, and you become like him. Something changes about you. What changes is I call it the double whammy. Not very theological term. It? The double whammy. What happens is. You are free, but you will never turn against him. Because you have seen him in all this unveiled glory, and you don't even want to sin. You would never want to sin because of what you have seen. That answers the question why, after a third of the angels joined Lucifer in his rebellion, the other two thirds will never rebel? Why? Because after that angelic test, where God had veiled his glory in some way to see if they would be loyal to him. And Lucifer and the 30 the angels rebel, and they're cast out of heaven. God then reveals all of his glory to words of the two thirds who, who were loyal, and they got the beatific vision, and they got the double whammy. So they've seen him now, and they'll never turn. So there's an angelic test, and there's a test for Adam and Eve in the garden. So when the Lord comes and hangs out in the old garden, when he's hanging out in the cool of the dead, that, that's not, that can't be unveiled glory. There is there is some veil there to see if they'll be loyal to him. They front the test. All right? And so now so sin entered in, the fall enters in, he promises the deliverer will come. And then we're delivered, and then we see him, he'll be unveiled glory, and we will never turn away from him. Or we'll be free forever and that And that's going to be one cool time or the beatific vision is what's coming. Okay. Now, the explanation for physical evil. So, if you guys see, basically, the real key to understanding if God about evil is understanding that God is love. God created free creatures to love him. In order to love him, you had to be free not to love him. So, sin enters in. You know, they, they choose to rebel at sin, and if that comes, all kinds of problems. All right? We have to fall. We've got all kinds of issues. All the best going on. All creation has been hurt by this. That's why we have all these violent storms, all this, this creation is groaning under this. It, all is groaning for its redemption. When Jesus comes back again, he's redeeming all creation is being redeemed. Okay, everything's being redeemed. Uh, so we're not distressed with all creation. Okay, explanation of physical evil are right, problem statement: There are many occurrences of unjustified suffering in the world. Floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, rape, civilian casualties, in war, cancer victims, etc. But even one instance of unjustified suffering shows there is no perfectly just God. Therefore, there is no God. That's the problem. The answer. Let's correct that. Three points. An attempt we made uh, to account for an alleged alleged innocent suffering. Many persons, many people, personally innocent, uh, innocent people suffer. The question is not whether they were innocent, but whether they're. Their innocent suffering is justifiable. Two, not all immediately unjustified suffering will be ultimately unjustified. Wrongs of today will be righted tomorrow. Injustices in this life will be justified in the next. So someone someone says, I just can't believe that God would allow that injustice to occur. Well, I'll answer, well, God's not through yet. God's not through yet. He will bring justice. This hasn't been yet. Okay? Number three is necessary to show how 100% of suffering in this world can be justified. It must be possible to show how all suffering is connected with free will and is necessary for the opportunity and attainment of the greatest good achievable. Let me give you ten reasons for physical suffering. Here they are. Number one, some physical evil comes to us directly from our own free choices. let's see somebody doesn't take care of themselves physically and they suffer from it. Okay, they make choices that can impact that. Right? So they can't blame that on God. They made some bad choices. Number two, some physical evil comes to us indirectly from the exercise of our freedom. Okay, so somebody is just being lazy and all of a sudden they're suffering say they lose their job. And they're saying, you know, God God must not be good because they lost my job. Well, they're suffering from, from choices that they've made again, even if it's indirectly because they're exercising their free will. Number three, some physical evil comes to us directly from our free choices. All right, or the free choices of others. So you can have somebody that, someone that uh, maybe hit their spouse. All right, well, and the spouse says, I can't believe God let me be hurt. Well, there was someone's free will being used, and that person's free will ended up causing you suffering. Okay, number four some physical evil comes to us indirectly from the free choices of others, like improper prenatal care, parental laziness. So forth. So, someone, I think parental laziness is easy to see there. That uh, that they, that the child, can be indirectly hindered by the, by the choices the parents have uh, made upon them. Not taking, not raising them right, and they suffer for the fact that they don't, they're not really equipped to handle what they need to be equipped to handle. And number five, some physical evil may be a possible byproduct of other good activities, like. Uh, for example, uh, rain's a good thing, right? But then, too much rain, we have floods. And uh, one time, I was a, uh, I was just 22 years old. I was in the Palau Islands, and I was working, with some missionaries there. And I was, uh, I was, I, I, was I, I was one guy. who one church truck, and I was like, anytime someone needed to do transportation, I was like one of the truck drivers. Gary, get the truck. We need you to. Do. I always went to the airport to pick up people. We had. He had a Jubilee 50 years of gospel down the islands and German missionaries. And the, and, the, and the original German missionaries who brought the for 50 years uh, earlier were coming for this special time of celebration. And I was picking one of them up, and he's like 80 now. And it was raining out it's his muddy and his holes, and I'm driving the truck and I pick him up. And, and here's this old godly man who gets in the truck, and I'm like, and I'm, I'm bragging about the mud and the weather and driving all this rain. And, and he looks at me and says, son, I'm like, yeah, I, I praise God for the blessing of rain, you know. <laughs> but uh, So sometimes even a good thing, you know, can actually cause some problems. All right. Okay, uh, let's see. Verse 6, I mean, number 6, some evils may come upon us as a result of the choice of evil spirits. Again, there's there's freedom that's worked there. Evil spirits can could, could impact their lives. All right, number 7, some evils are God-given... Warnings of greater physical evils. Like the toothache that you go to the dentist in time and he ends up saving the tooth. So that little pain saves you a great pain. Number eight. Some physical suffering may be used by God as a warning about moral evils. Okay, so again, God using. I mean, how do you get how do you get a free creature's attention? They don't respond to revelation, but God loves and wants to get their attention. How do you do it? Well, sometimes pain is the only thing that they will finally look the know, i you know. I've been, I've been, I've seen people before that walked away from God and they build and they end up in the hospital with all these troubles and I'm still by the hospital bed and, and they look at me and, I'm, and I'm, I'm right there to pray for them. I'm there just judging or saying anything. I'm just there to pray for them and they're, they're laying in the back and they'll you know, say, why did this happen to me, Pastor? And I, I, one time I said, well right now you're in a perfect position to look up. Maybe. That's what God wants you to do. Why don't you sense it to hell with him? Does God have his attention? Okay. Uh, let's just jump down a few. Why doesn't God miraculously intervene to prevent all physical evil from occurring? Answer. A. God could if he chose to do this. The omnipotent God has the power and the sovereign control of his creation. B. In some cases, God does intervene and interrupt physical evil. We see this, obviously, in the miracles of Christ, but we've all kind of seen those things in our lives too, when God did intervene and save us a lot of pain. See, sometimes he does. See, evil men do not really want God to intercept every evil act or thought. At best, people really want God to intercept only some evil actions. And he does do that through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, through the moral law, through Christians. So God is intercepting a lot of evil. Did you guys ever see the movie uh, Bruce Almighty? About uh, who was the actor? It was Jim Carrey. Wasn't it? It was it was a guy and, he, and He wanted. He just he was complaining about how God ought to answer all these prayer questions. So he let him go ahead and try to answer all these things, and he's messing it all it up, right? Okay. That, that, he leaves us D. Continued interference would disrupt the regularity of natural law and make life impossible. E. It is possible that chaos would result from. Continuous, miraculous intervention. You know, I remember being in a, uh, I remember on the way to a prayer meeting one time, it was, it was a business from Elk's of farmer's up in Illinois, and and they were going to a prayer meeting uh, for rain. They hadn't had any rain. And I remember that morning thinking how good it was not to have rain so we could play outside. I was I was a kid, right? And I'm like, so I'm thinking, I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm grateful there's no rain. So then we go to a prayer meeting, and then the for rain. go rain. And so just think about that. I mean, so if it, there's no way God can answer everybody's prayers because his prayers are not all, do can all be answered the same way. All right, F. If God would prevent all evil from occurring, we'd have to interfere with the full exercise of free will. G. In a world of constant divine intervention, all moral learning would cease. A. all physical evil is either a consequence, a condition, or a commitment of free choice. By the way, that's a big summary right there. All physical evil is either a consequence, a condition, or a commitment of free choice. Uh, physical evil is not desired by God, but it is used by Him to occasion a full exercise of free choice and a maximized opportunity for attaining the greatest good achievable in a fully free moral world. Okay, and this right here is just extra biblical, biblical perspective on suffering. What does the Bible actually teach about suffering? This is the purposes for suffering and our responses to suffering. So you can look at that on your own. Okay, tracking right along, we're going to go to what about those you never heard? There you go. Again, this question is 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 consistently asked. You know, and it's good for us to stop and think about how we can answer this question. I was uh, I was in Ankara, Turkey, and I was talking to the, the pastor of a church in Ankara. And it had a hundred Turkish believers in it, which in Turkey is a big church. And I was, I was asking the pastor's name was Isan. asking him how he came to Christ, and he was uh, so he he had he hadn't, he'd never heard he never heard of uh, he never understood or heard about true Christianity, you hear pieces of it you know, through Islam, but he didn't understand. He was on a bus. He so said, I was on a bus. Public transportation. And I was asking God, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're real, then you've got to show me yourself. He has an open, he, this is his telling me this. He has an open vision on the bus of Jesus appearing to him. Saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes upon the truth. I said, really? He said, yeah. And he said, then it took me two years to find a Christian to share the gospel to me. So he becomes a Christian. He leaves He's leading this church of a hundred believers. Turkish believers. I said, so how many? I said, so how many of those believers out of a hundred had a vision or a dream about Jesus before hearing the gospel from a Christian? He said, out of 100, 70. He so said, well, "What about those who never heard?" Well, I'll tell you what, God. If God sees a, a heart that wants to know the truth. He'll get the truth. That's right. All right, let's look at this. Okay, general considerations. The answer to this question does not determine if Christianity is true or not. The matter has already been solved by the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Also, the matter of authority, the Bible has also been solved once for all. This issue of those who haven't heard is really a matter of interpretation and understanding. All right, B. When this question is asked, the real question may be, What is God like? The questioner would not want to give his life to a God who's mean, uncaring, and unjust, who sends people to hell who never had a chance. That, that really can be, and that's a legitimate question by a lot of people. What about those who never heard? In other words, is God just? Is this, is this God you say is a true God? And is he fair? Doesn't sound like it's fair to me if people never even heard. How could they die and go to hell? All right? So that's a fair, that's a fair question to be asked. See, although this question can be very sincere, it's also possible that it is a smokescreen. That is it is a question to dodge the real issue of the gospel and personal responsibility to God. When a person thinks may or may not happen what a person thinks may or may not happen to the heathen doesn't relieve the responsibility before God on judgment day. The question is not only what about the heathen who never heard The question, more importantly, is what about you who have now heard? So, and that's what I try to bring it back to. I'll I'll, I'll tell you what, that's a good question. And can we talk about, let me talk to you about that afterward. But right now, you are hearing. I mean, I want to go ahead and share the gospel with them at that moment. I don't want to put it off. Say, that's a good question. There's a good answer for it. But right now, you're hearing the truth. And so, uh, I I, I try to share with them that first conversation, if at all possible. Right, there are there many things in the Bible I cannot understand. There are many things in the Bible I don't, I only think I understand. There are many things in the Bible I cannot misunderstand. The whole point being that the, the gospel is uh, something that really is pretty simple to understand. All right, E, members from every tribe, people on earth will hear and respond to the gospel. So the truth is, when someone says, well, what about this never heard? There is a day coming where there will be people from every tongue and tribe around the throne that are going to hear. All right, now basic principles. First of all, God's nature prevents him from being unjust or acting unfairly. God cannot be unfair. God cannot be unjust. That's the first answer. God is just. God is fair. All right, B. Those who have never heard of Jesus Christ are not in complete darkness. God has illumined them in several ways. Now, this is real important that we understand this. All right? God is revealing revelation to all mankind right now. All right, what kind of revelation? All right, through nature. All right, Romans chapter 1, through the fact of creation. Romans 19, in fact, let's read Romans 19. uh, Verse 1 through 6 real quick. I mean, Psalm 19, uh, 1 through 6. This is what we would call general revelation. Psalm 19. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, he's saying all creation is speaking, really, of God. All right? Okay, and also uh, the other passage there, Romans 1 I want to read to you. Romans chapter 1. It says, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, talking about God, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Creation. So there are without excuse. So creation itself is a revelation of the fact that it had to be created. And so God is holding all mankind accountable for the revelation that that he's given already. He's given what we call general revelation. There must be a God. They can respond to that or they can reject that. All right? But that's not all. Also, Romans chapter 2, he talks about our conscience. All mankind is given a conscience. This whole sense of right and wrong is in us. You know, the sense I'm going to have to give an account for it is in us. That's why that atheist said, you know, that he, in the debate, after the debate that, it was morally uncomfortable for him to believe in God because there's a sense you have to give an account. So he has to come up with some arguments that he can put up a the smokescreen. There is no God, so he doesn't have to fear giving an account. All right, awareness of eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter three says that God has set eternity in our hearts. I mean, we just, there's a sense that we're that there's an eternity. That we, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense if we we're just evolved from animals that would be thinking about eternity. But we do. You know, you find that in all these different tribal people in the darkness, jungles, and and you can find that there's a sense about an afterlife. Where did that come from? You know, it comes from the fact that eternity is put in our hearts. Why does the Pharaoh want to be buried with all of his gold for the afterlife? Why? Because he thinks he's going to have an afterlife. Where did that come from? It's going to put it in him. All right? And the material goodness, just the goodness of God, it also is the revelation of the existence of God. And so there is a certain amount of light already given to everybody. Okay? So everybody has a certain amount of revelation. All right. Next. See, If a man responds favorably, responds to God favorably, accepting the light of revelation given to him, God will see that person will receive the necessary information to make a decision for Christ. Okay? In other words, so God sees every heart. He sees those who respond to the light he have been given. If they respond positively, he gives them more light. If they don't respond positively, why should he give them more light? That means they're just going to be held with greater condemnation. There's just going to be more to give an account for. If you don't respond to a little light, why should God give you more light? It's you're going to be held accountable for. Okay. God will respond to light. In fact, Acts chapter 16 is a great story. Where you have, there's some women in Philippi on a riverbank praying. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. They never heard the gospel. But they're praying. They want to know Him. They're praying. They're seeking Him. They're responding to whatever revelation they receive. They're praying on a riverbank near Philippi. What does God do? He says, in Acts 16, he sends Paul with his apostolic band of brothers all the way across the country of Turkey, across the sea, over to Greece to a riverbank to share the gospel with these women. In fact, God, the Lord tells Paul, he says, it says that he forbid them to speak as they're going through Turkey the gospel of anybody else. He wants to get them in a hurry to, to these women. Why? Because they're responding to Revelation. He sees their heart. And he gets his apostle Paul's band and sends them all the way across the country to Turkey, guys. And this is not, you know, there's not high speed trains, you know. I mean, he's just taking a while for him to get there. Why? Because. God wants to get sure they get the truth. That's the heart of God. So when someone says, what about those who've never heard of it? My answer is, if they respond to, to the revelation God's already given, God will make sure they do. He absolutely will make sure. All right. The biblical procedure goes like this. Here's this procedure. A, God illumines every man and woman through natural revelation. Through nature, through conscience, through awareness, and eternity, through material goodness. So there is revelation for everyone. B, Yet, Jesus Christ is the only way to God, heaven and salvation. And see, God wants everyone saved. D therefore, God will send a messenger to all who respond to natural revelation to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who believe are saved. We have biblical examples of that. Cornelius in the book of Acts. I mean, they're seeking God they're praying, right? And so God wants to get Peter over there. So, so, so Peter's, you know, Peter's thinking he, he, think, he thinks it's going to be unclean. Of course, even after God tells him to go over there, Peter is basically arguing with God that this is an unclean situation. He's explaining God to clean this is, you know. Okay. So God is explaining to Peter that what He calls clean is clean, and get over there, all right. And then so he so he gets Peter over there. Peter walks in There's a prayer meeting. The Holy Spirit falls on him, and Peter's you know, just not trying to understand what's happening here. What's happening is you had some people Cornelius's household and others who were seeking God. God saw it. And God wants to get the gospel to him, so he's looking for someone now to use. Well, Peter's handy. So he's got, to, he's got to get Peter a dream to get him over there. And so Peter eventually goes over there because messages were also sent. And so Peter goes and he shares the gospel. Why? Because God still wants to use a human to share the gospel. God may use a dream, a vision, an angel, but when it comes down confidently, he wants to use a human. He's going to use a human to show you God. Okay, so Cornelius, there's lots of, there's lots of examples of uh, people responding to revelation. The whole Magi story is a great story of responding to the revelations they had. And then to go on this probably 18-month journey to find just to worship the promised the side. Okay. Modern examples in the mission field. What there's is, a. What does CF mean? This just a just reference. Oh, okay. A, reference. Uh, a lot of modern examples in the mission field where they have. Uh, there is a one particular story, and I can't remember all the details. I just remember it was. Uh, there was some Woodford uh, Bible translators had going to. I don't remember it was, but it was a jungle spot, <coughs> and they were actually going in because they heard there were some people there. And, and you know, like you know, a lot of times, they would say there's more, there's more people down the river. So went like right there, and uh, apparently, there was enough similarity to the language that they had already learned with this language, and they went there and they could communicate somewhat. And they, and this people, this this tribe had built a a, a house. Church building came. They built a worship place. And when they showed up, they said, they, they said, we've been waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Was, we are told that you have be coming. God was sending someone to tell us about him. And so we built this place. He would tell us. I we, should, we should always have to know what we're doing, always to <laughs> But that, There's a lot of examples where people are responding to some revelation and God's going to make sure no matter if you give a dream, a vision, an angelic visitation, whatever, he's still gonna send somebody human with an answer. That's how God works. So he's given us this great honor. Okay, question four. Could those who have never heard who yet respond positive to natural revelation be let into heaven through some other way besides Christ? Answer God can do anything he likes. Yet if God is powerful enough to reveal himself through some other way, He's powerful enough to do it the way he said he would through Jesus. That's the way God chooses to do it. It's, it's, it's the gospel. All right, D. Those who have never heard condemn themselves by rejecting the light received by not keeping their own old standards. A rejection of external revelation brings condemnation, according to Romans chapter one. And number two, rejection of internal revelation means condemnation, known as later in Romans. The punishment will be proportioned to responsibility and revelation. Less revelation demands less responsibility, therefore less judgment. I want you guys to remember what Jesus said. If uh, Jesus talked about receiving greater condemnation. Let's just look at a couple of these passages. Let might be summarized too much. Let's look at some of these uh, passages here. Turn to Luke 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke twelve forty-seven. Okay, remember, in fact, I probably need to back up to... Uh... This is, I'll pick up verse 43. Blessed is that slave who master finds... So doing when he comes. In other words, when Jesus returns again, we're doing his will. Verse 45, but that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now notice verse 47, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready, or act in accord with His will shall receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy their fighting will receive but few. Okay, so basically, he's teaching there is different levels of punishment. Just like there's different levels of reward in heaven, there's different levels of punishment in hell. All right? There, are few lashes, many lashes. So here's here's out of God's mercy. If He gives revelation and a person will not respond to that little revelation, then for God to give more revelation that they're going to reject would bring greater condemnation upon them. So out of God's mercy, He doesn't give all that revelation if they reject the small light, I give them more light. But if they do respond to the light given, then God's going to give them more light so they can know Jesus. So really, it seems like a mean thing for God to hold back revelation, but it's actually a merciful thing because he doesn't want them to have greater condemnation. All right? There's other. Let me, let's me. look at a couple of others. Uh, let's see. Which one do I want? Let's go to Matthew. Let's, let's do one more. Matthew 10. It's Matthew 10, verse 15. In fact, let me, let me back up enough the context. He's sending out, you know, the 12 disciples on a mission. He's telling them what to do. In verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. First nine, do not acquire gold, silver on your journey. Uh, verse 12, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. Whoever does not receive you or heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Now verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than the day of judgment than for that city. What he's saying there is Sodom and Gomorrah had a certain amount of revelation. And uh, they rejected God based on the revelation they had and they are judged for it. What he's saying now is there's a greater revelation now coming to these 12 disciples. And if they reject that, then there's going to be a greater condemnation because of that greater revelation than even Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that make sense? So again, I just, I just want you to see that uh, the principle simply is simply this. If people respond to the revelation that God's given them, God will give them more. If they don't respond to that. That would be unmerciful for God to give them more because that's just going to be a greater condemnation. All right. All right. E. Those who have heard condemn themselves by rejecting the gospel itself. So if someone does hear and uh, reject the gospel, then they condemn themselves. Here's some other questions. What about aborted babies, infants, retarded, the insane? Well, here's a principle. People unable consciously to choose Christ are not held accountable for rejecting Him. Hence, this is my personal conviction heaven is probably a waste. Them. I think all aborted babies are in heaven. That's my personal conviction. Uh, and I'll tell you why. One of the reasons why is... Remember King David, uh, when he basically prayed that God was scared of the baby that she was going to give birth to that his basically his his adultery mm-hmm. produced. And he, uh, he he's praying and then, and then he then finds out that uh, the baby's gonna go and die. David says something interesting. David says you will not come to me, I'll go to you. Talking from the front of David. Mm-hmm. So he was making a statement that he understood that that, that 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 baby did not reach the age of any accountability and uh being heavy. And so, there's a, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, uh, there's Christians that have held different views about this. It just seems more consistent with, with the things I know from the Bible, that, that they're under the shed blood of Christ, uh, because they have that chance to reject it. All right, B, what about people who lived before Christ? All the above principles still apply, especially salvation for them like us with my faith alone. Plus remember that the the, the the promise of a deliverer coming was given back in Genesis chapter three. To Adam and Eve. So that, that promise was from the beginning. So that so that all, all before Christ they, they know that they're believing and looking forward to the coming of this deliverer, the coming of the Messiah. Now if we look back at the cross that he's come already. But so they can look forward to the fact that he is coming. Too. There, there still had to be faith, and I think openly in the fact that in him, openly him. But uh, in the promises of God. And the open promise of God, of course, is that he's sending Messiah. That's the promise he makes right there in Genesis 3 15. All right. Now, questions about anything? So, yeah, I have
2: one question. You talked about the deity.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a verse in uh, in. Uh, it some other uh, says the the mysteries belong to God, but that which is revealed belongs to us. Others, there's there's some things that we can't know, but, but we've been revealed. There's lots of things that haven't been revealed to us that we can know, and those are things we need to hold on to. Faith. I think the faith comes. in our faith is on what God has said. And uh, there's some things that God hasn't been clear about, and those things we should not be clear just admit that we can't be clear about He clear about that. But he's been clear about plenty for us to to you know, live the kind of lives in to see. There's lots of stories like that. And it's like uh, some, some of the stories seem almost a little bit comical because that, the, the treatment one, going to get gross on story. She's walking down the street. She was in Russia. it was under the USSR. And uh, she's walking down the street, and she's saying, God, I just really want to know the truth. I want to know you. I want to know you. And she tells a story. A Bible falls out of a barber window, lands on her foot, and opens up to John 3, 16. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, it's easy to say, oh, I don't know about that one, but that's our story. But that's the kind of things it's easy for God to do if someone wants to know the truth. And so they can grow up in family. And you think about, like, like all the different, uh, in fact, we had one of the gals from our college group was from Ethiopia. And she came to Christ here. She tells her story. She grew up, she was a street kid in Ethiopia. Now, what's the chance of a street kid in Ethiopia end ended up in the United States coming to know Christ? But she tells a staggering story of she wanted to know God. And she's just, she, 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 just wonderful. So you hear some of these stories, it's like, if God sees the heart, he makes a way. And it could be someone that's uh, living, surrounded by Hindu family, surrounded by Muslims, surrounded by Tibetan Buddhists, you know, whatever. But says uh, if God sees the heart. One of my good friends, Stephen Hissie, is in heaven now. He was training to be, he was Tibetan, trained to be a Buddhist monk in Tibet. And yeah, he comes to know Christ. And uh, it's a long story how he does it, but he and I become good friends, very good friends. We traveled through Tibet together because we, we our church, many years ago helped put a radio station in Northern India, sharing the gospel into Tibet, uh, in Tibetan. And so we wanted to know where that radio signal was going where it was going the well, see, and I decided we'd go through Tibet and find out. So we got—we we had a four-wheeler. We had a Tibetan guy. We're at—we're—we're we're at based in Mount Everest, and we're all over the place, in, you know, in Tibet. And we're going to all these villages, and we're checking out the radio signal. Well, also, monks from the top six Tibetan monasteries were writing letters to the radio station asking more about Jesus, because they're getting the radio program. So these Tibetan Buddhist monks wanted to go by Jesus. So the other thing we went for is we wanted to go to all these monasteries. And we'd all this stuff. And we had all these Jesus videos in Tibet. And we had the Gospel of John in Tibet. And we had all this kind of stuff that we'd smuggled in. And so we had, we also had a Chinese guy that was kind of watching. So I was like a dumb tourist that kept distracting the guy. Like, what about this over here, you know? So, so Stephen could do all the stuff. So we're praying that God will make a way. We, we had no appointments with anybody. And these six monasteries and then they're all elevation 16 you know like uh, 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 feet there's a plateau the Tibetan plateau is 15 16 thousand feet. We're like 50 percent oxygen you're like who's the oxygen but uh, so we're going up these monasteries and we're praying lord you know you gotta you gotta intersect us with these monks so we don't know who the monks are that writing the questions but we brought all this stuff for them so we go to the first monastery and now i'll tell you the truth i woke right before i woke up i had a dream and I saw the stairs in the monastery, and there's a monk waiting for us. So I so, only uh, go up and tell Stephen. I just had this dream. So we drive to the monastery, and it was the very picture I had in my dream. And so we go up to the top of the, of, of the stairs, and there's all these monks are, are practicing the debate over their Tibetan scriptures. So they have the teacher, and they have the student, teacher student. All over this, all over the red road. And I thought, well, what did we do? There was, there was one guy in my dream that wants us here. Well, so Stephen said, give him a signal to distract the Chinese guy, so I'm distracting the Chinese guy. And this monk comes up to Stephen and says, "What did you bring me?"
1: <laughs>
0: so Stephen goes around the corner, and Stephen is giving him the Gospel of John in Tibetan, doing all this stuff. And never never met the guy before; doesn't know. Gives it all to him. Of course, Stephen speaks, speaks Tibetan, and, uh, and and so by the time he's done, huh, you know the Chinese guy starting to get curious where he is. And so we pull back. We thought. You know, we got seminary, I mean, monastery number one. So we monastery number two. Same thing happened. And someone comes up to see, what you bring? So finally, we, we, we ran out of time, and we still had, we had four monasteries to go to, and we only had time but to go to one. So we go to the highest monastery in Tibet. We go there, and we've got, we got stuff for four monasteries still. So I, I got the, the Chinese guy, and I, I'm going real fast up the stairs. You know, and again, you're really high, so it's, you know, you're short of breath. And, I, and so the Chinese guy's going slow down, slow said, no, I want to go. Come up here. So I'm trying to get him away from Stephen. So Stephen's walking the stairs real slowly. It's a long way up in the mountains. And I got the Chinese guy way far away, and he's concerned about Stephen. Go, hey, I need to ask you some questions. So I got distract him distracted. Four monks from the four monasteries we still haven't gone to come up to Stephen and said, What did you bring us? So he gets to load all of, all of the videos and stuff to these four monks to bring back to the monastery. And then he comes to me, and he's smiling, going, hey <laughs> I mean, you know, I wish all my Christian days were like they excited, but that, that was one of those moments where it was just, everything was just so God intense. And so basically I'll tell you all that to say, God sees hearts. He sees hearts in the Tibetan monasteries. You know, who, you know, they're doing all of their religion, but the deep inside they're thinking, "Say that right? Same. What is true God? And all of a sudden, you know, they hear this radio program. They start getting interested in Jesus. And they write the letters, I'm sure, secretly. You know? And, and, and somehow God lets to them. I'm not about it, but we never find out. Did they get a dream that some kind of guys are going to show up? But somehow they knew they were coming. What did you bring us and so, first,
1: um, I know there's a difference of uh, how old you figure
3: in the eight and the Bible. Can you tell me I think it's the second is the middle of years
1: and then on the Bible about the subject?
0: I'm sorry, I was trying to say, one time. So uh, actually, there's a there's a lot of godly Christians who believe in the young earth, there's a lot of godly Christians who believe in the old earth. But I would say the old question let's not make the age of the earth a connect, connected to the Orthodox Christianity. You can have you can have you be committed to Genesis, you know, the creation in Genesis and have old earth or young earth. There's eleven different ways to interpret Genesis, the the days of creation in Genesis. And, uh, and still be still believe in a little Bible and so uh, again remember the days the word for days is, is Yom and you know a thousand years is a day, a day is a thousand years and you don't even have the sun and the moon to so what? what day? third day, fourth day? fourth day and so it's, it's really hard necessarily to argue for young earth though I have a I actually have a chapter in my thesis on the age of the age of the earth because uh, you took that in the thesis too long, but the, uh, there was a, a Christian geologist, PhD geologist. In fact, his name is David Young. He wrote a couple of books called Christianity and the Year. And his whole plea was he, he's, he's an evangelical Christian trying to lead his fellow geologist PhDs to Christ. And he's, he's urging other, he's urging Christians, don't make Young Earth a form of orthodoxy. Because I've got these guys who think, thinking, wait a second, do I have to be Young Earth to believe in Christ? No! So that's, that's what he's arguing in his books, but uh, basically, I think the uh, person—I'll say personally, i believe it's old. Mm-hmm. I believe the Earth is old. Okay. Person, okay. I believe it is. Okay. That's my personal conviction. Now, uh, the younger arguments—I've heard them, but you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know just—that's that's my that's my belief. Now, if someone has a different view, I'm like, so, huh? It's not a big deal with me, you know. But if, I'm, if I don't want to keep somebody from hearing the gospel, so wait a second, I don't believe in young earth. Uh, and so it's—I can be a godly Christian you can be the it younger, earth, you can be a godly Christian believer. I, I just haven't believed in soul. And I don't think it gives Genesis any problems. I don't think it gives it any problems. We still have a little Genesis, found kind of little creation that God did it the way He did it. And God is not restraining time. But there's nothing specific.
3: Because I, I, was, I also believe that it's
0: millions of years. But I just heard someone saying that the Bible says that it's 10,000 years So That's not true at all. The Bible doesn't say it. What they do, they're trying to—they're basically arguing, you know, let, let me give you an example of what we're in this room. Okay, verse 1, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. Verse 2, And the earth is formless and void. And darkness coming over the earth how long between verse 1 and verse 2 Well, I'm saying there's, 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 we don't know how, how long did that take With earth's, how long was it you know, formless avoid? in fact in Isaiah Isaiah says God never created anything formless and void so how was it verse formless and void verse 2 I think it's because that's when Lucifer got thrown out of heaven down to the earth Darkness covered here. Anyway, but that's another hole. That's another <laughs> whole. That's another whole bunch of handouts, are so you <laughs> <laughs> to argue that. Something else. but First of all, I mean, it, it says that I give you, I give you a verse that you can wrestle with, since you guys want controversy. You- <laughs> turn to, uh, turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Are you 107, and Something about a verse. Yeah. Well, this, uh, I have to look it up here. Was just what God says He gave. He actually gave wine to make the hearts glad. And I'm going to find the verse Yeah, that's it. Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine makes, makes man's heart glad so he you can make his taste pleasant with all. Now, obviously, the Bible speaks very clearly about not being drunk. Very clear, Not to be drunk, but to be filled with spirit. There's no verse in the Bible that says that it is a sin to drink wine. It is a sin to get drunk. And when Jesus, the wine that Jesus made, people will say, well, Jesus would have made ceremonial wine. But Jesus made wine that if they drank too much of it, they got drunk. So whatever you say about the wine you made, if they drank too much of it, they still got drunk. But he did. He made the wine. But here's what Jesus says. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of So Jesus, and this might be hard for some of you to picture, but Jesus is going to raise a glass at the wedding feast. That's how it he was writing. He's going to raise a glass at the wedding feast. Okay, and so again, particularly in the South, in this part, and there's there's a, there's a lot of legalism. I understand, and, uh, and there's there's a lot of people that uh, you know, wrestle with alcoholism and those things, and they should you know, they should shouldn't touch it. But I just tell people, look, we got all these commandments in the Bible. Why don't I want to add some on my own. guys. The thing about it was the wine they made in that day, they drank too much of it, they got drunk. So it doesn't, and that's the simplicity of it. They drank too much, they got drunk. And so don't drink too much. I mean, so, don't be drunk. You feel the spirit. All right? Okay, guys, uh, we're out of time. Before I get any other hard questions, we'll wrap it up here. But let's all stand up and we'll Father, well, we are so grateful that you gave us the revelation of the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you opened our eyes to see the glorious gospel of Jesus. We thank you you brought us into your family. And you have also given us high calling of being ambassadors of Christ. We pray, Lord, you would join us, fill us your spirit, and enable us, Lord, to speak clearly as we ought to speak, to speak simply, to speak truthfully and lovingly with wisdom to people about the truth. Lord, we pray that you use us, Lord, in our places that we live and work and go to school, and recreate, and use us to be those that can really speak the truth to those that you are already working in their lives, Lord. You're already preparing hearts. We just want to be those that you send. So, Lord, we trust you to lead us to that end. And, Lord, I just pray you enable us all to clearly understand these things that we've gone over today and use them effectively, not just to know them, but to use them to help people know the truth. Praise pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, Thanks, guys, class, Thank class. <laughs> It's also true that whosoever believes, that's true too. And so, what we can't do is we got to leave room for two sides of this to be on a comprehension. God chooses you; the free to choose. They're both true. And the way I like to do it is this: I can say, let's say, uh, let's say we're stick men and stick women. we're just two dimensional. And if I I say stick stick man, stick woman, world, two dimensional, I say, I said, Mindy, I have two hands here. And you say, just looks like one do you. I said, well, uh, trust me, there's two. Then I move us to a three-dimensional world, and I go, you say, well, now I it. I need that extra dimension to understand. See, so a lot of things that, that we that we hold in tension, like free will and the God's sovereignty, is uh, really, they're both true. We just don't have enough dimensions to get it. So right now, yes, God shows you. Yes, you're, you're, you're lucky for that nation. And yes, you are so so someone says, well, i want to be chosen." Well, believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> believe in Christ, and you're chosen. We don't. We don't know how if it's going to. The hypercans have trying to package everything in their little in their tulip. You know, their five points, and right. you can't get all the verses in that package.
3: Right. That's why I'm like, I'm so. Confused. And, and so I'm saying, <laughs> so blow
0: up the package. Uh-huh. We don't need a package. Let's just let's just keep on the verses and if God says it's true hold on to that. And so a lot of isms, you know, after a while, it's like, how many isms are there? You know? I saw you might be familiar with it, because then yeah. Adam asked Nate Kemp, he's our life group leader. What
3: do you think about this? And he's like, I'm a fan. So he knew Molinism. so I hmm. thought maybe he, yeah, I know he, yeah, he I, writes a lot of your
0: books I, I, that he yeah. recommends. Well, I would have to look and see what the definitions are. I'm sure it's nothing new in the sun, you know, I mean. it's right. probably another name, though, for me, that was used, you know, in the first century. It's kind of like, you know, so every, every every uh Cultic belief today and every, it, all those existed in the first century, or second century. I mean, it's nothing. To do. Just under different titles. And stuff. Yeah. It's a deep issue,
3: I and mean, it's just left me struggling with it, which is a good thing. Well, that, because the, I want to understand yeah. what I believe. But,
0: so. Well, to me, there's no so. To me, yes, God is sovereign, and yes, He can share. Yeah. And and, and we don't know how but that it's to not matter. leaving me doubting my faith by yeah. any means, but it just like I
3: was like, well, I've always thought the Holy Spirit drew people, so does He not? Yeah, so he does. He also, no like one comes said, to the
0: Father. Jesus said no one comes to him as the Father. Yeah. So yes, there's a God part, and yet he's, Jesus said many times, where's your faith? Right? He said this time, where's your faith? In other words, we expected to do something. We're expected to respond and believe. So they're both true. Yeah. And yeah. I, I can live with attention, it doesn't bother me.
1: And
3: see he threw out his my teacher threw out his view at the very last minute saying that it's mysterious and we don't know. It's a mystery. We don't understand how it works together. Calvinism has you know, some flaws, and Molino- Molinism is too philosophical, so we don't really know. So that's his view, is we don't know. <laughs> but we do know you have to accept predestination, you have to accept election, because those are in Scripture, but how free will and God's sovereignty works, we don't really know.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But then I said free will, and he said, well, I don't really believe in free will, it's man's liberty. Well, what's the difference? Like, is that just semantics? It's like... He just had me all confused, because he tried to do a very deep lecture in one class and didn't get to cover it all, and that was the end of the semester. So now I'm like, what? <laughs>
0: well, if you, if you want to, uh, why don't you email me at Gary Grace and you give me definition of it or something, I'll look at it. Well,
3: it, it sounds like it's like Calvinism too, though, where there's a lot of branches of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Arminianism that have a lot of different variations in it, so I don't really know anything
1: it.
3: Yeah, but well, okay. So I know one point is they really believe in radically depraved, not total depravity of humanity because there's a sense that we are created in God's image. So we're not totally depraved, just the image
0: depraved. of God has been defaced, not erased. That's how we would say. That's that's why every that's why every movie, I think it's a problem. It has the same plot. There's an injustice in the beginning of the movie. And then you want, the, you want justice the whole movie. At the end of the movie, the good guy gets justice, and you're happy. Why does why even non-believers have it? Because the image of God, is in that. They want justice. Yeah. So it's not been race. It's just. So maybe morally
3: depraved is rare.
0: Well, I, see even the way that you find is uh, see hypercal says the man says like you walk by a lake it says no swimming and a man's man's swimming and he's face down dead in the water. And so God saves him by first, you know, regenerating him, making him alive, and then puts the, you know, the uh, lifesaver around him, and then pulls him in. Oh, there's a man to do anything. And I said, no, yeah, there's a no-swing sign. This man's out there, man can't save himself. He's flopping around out there, but he can't swim to shore. He can't get there. And Jesus throws out a life preserver, to him, and all he's got to do is so yeah, there it is, but if he doesn't receive it, he goes, Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And Solists say the private is, yeah, he can't save himself. But yes, he can. He can respond to the gospel. Jesus said, if I can lift it up, I'll draw all men to myself. The people use that as a worship verse, right? It's not a worship verse. Because <laughs> the next verse says he's talking about being lifted up on the cross, right? Yeah. So when he says, when I'm done on the cross, I'm drawing all men to myself. So this is a drawing of, of that. And then the Holy Spirit in the world, John 16, of convicting the world of sin, righteousness and justice. Conviction. So the Holy Spirit is in all. So people can can believe. So God is doing all this, he's them they can believe, but they still got Jesus. There's still a choice. If there wasn't a choice, then I'll say, uh, when Jesus was weeping outside of Jerusalem and he said, Oh Jerusalem, do you know how the gathering is a hand gathering just that he would not? So when she comes to Jesus and correct the theology, right? no. <laughs> don't, you, don't you need you don't you know you need to regenerate them first? Yeah. Obviously they could. Yeah. Or he wouldn't be weeping. They wouldn't. So there is there is a choice of people. And uh, we can't take that out of the equation. You know? So you're kind of in the camp where you're,
3: there's, we're just going to look at the Bible and not have to ascribe to a certain, I don't, I we got to make this fit. I don't know if try to
0: squeeze all these verses in one only package because it doesn't work. Because it
3: doesn't, yeah. And that's they're, kind they're, of least,
0: in there's spot. some mystery there. We've got to leave. Yeah. And that's one of the cases. So. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I am not with the big stuff you now. Yeah. <laughs> you share the gospel and and you love God, lead me where he leads me and let's see what God will do.
3: I guess I just like, in witnessing to people, it makes me feel a lot more responsibility not believing that well. I I guess questioning the Calvinism thing, it always made me feel like well if I share with you, and you reject it that's on you. Now I'm feeling more personal responsibility and I shouldn't because I'm not responsible. God does
0: all the heavy lifting in the that's why
3: it's just like there's this struggle now in my heart. Right?
0: Yeah, I, just, okay, I you pray pray, and, you just pray my prayer to where's my portion? Yeah. I don't know what is my portion. You do the heavy lifting. I'll share with the Lord I, you know, you're the one who convinces in the heart. Yeah. And so yeah, it's so the pressure it off. And you know, so okay, no, no take that off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Real quick, thirty uh-huh. second testimony.
2: So when I went to Malaysia, of course I didn't know it was coming. Got all the way over there, flew from Bali Port to Penang, right? Was on an airplane with a young lady, spoke with her, she was in Chinese, and she got talking about a friend of hers who's an atheist, who's now seeking God, didn't know how. It's like I talked to her about deviant. So and just what you cool. what it said resonated because I see how now God sends somebody out there. So okay. so cool. Oh, praise God. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Okay. All right, really cool. Okay. Was the class only like a one day class or is it a two day class? Well, because I said before it was a two day
0: no, I was just we we're just trying to do it on Saturday thing. That's why normally that's why I'm doing this totally stuff so fast because normally I I take a couple of days for this, cause, mm-hmm. but uh, I just thought especially in the summertime. It's, it's, we used to do, like do Tuesday nights, like six weeks of Tuesday nights, and then people were like, hey, we just have to do it on Saturday, you know. So I'm like, that's cool we'll do it. <laughs> and then we started doing like a lunch break and then come back, and some people. It was like, I don't to get my homestead in. I said, look, I'll just do four hours and give you the guts. Right. <laughs> so that's what we went for. Okay. okay. Yeah, we just didn't want to make sure we yeah.
3: missed anything.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I <laughs> hope that was helpful to you guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: Well, we're going to look
0: deeper into it, too, on all the verses. Good. Good. About, awesome. So. <laughs> right, awesome. Good to meet you, guys. Good, good to sorry. meet you, too.